Welcome back to the Demystify Sci Podcast. I'm Michael Shiloh. I'm Anastasia. Today on the show, we have Lance Weaver, a geologist who has made all sorts of interesting forays into the archaeological history of the Americas. And today he is presenting a unique view on the peopling of the Americas. Well, not so much the peopling, but the cultural uh, transmission between different peoples, uh, particularly transoceanic contact ideas. And they differ from the ideas that are being popularized by people like Graham Hancock in that Lance doesn't imagine a master technological civilization that governed the appearance of different monoliths and megalithic structures across the Americas. Before being wiped out by the Ice Age. Instead, he looks at some very specific pieces of symbolism that appear on both continents and imagines a very different nuanced picture of how this all goes down. And I don't want to totally give it away because he does a better job explaining it than me. But what I love about Lance's work is that he's very careful and he's not leaping to any giant conclusions, but rather setting the pieces out in front of us so that we can make up our own minds. And I think that's really the best hope for science in the future is a situation where stories are put forth, but ultimately it's in the hands of you guys and us to make up our own minds about what happened. Yeah, it's a wild ride of comparative archaeology, and Lance does a great job of presenting the evidence. And, you know, he's obviously convinced by it, but is scientifically careful in that he doesn't assume that it is truth. He is simply asking people to take a close look at it and to consider that the stories that we have that we rely on today might not be the accurate stories. And that is what we love because Demystify Sci is all about exploring the limits of human knowledge and figuring out where it is the stories that we're so fond of might not be exactly right. And so a huge thank you to Lance Weaver for coming by. We had a great conversation with him a few months back about uh, pole shifts and a potentially a different location for the ice cap during the last ice age. And so this is another great follow-up with him. Hopefully we'll have him back a couple months down the line. In the meantime, if you like the episode, share it with friends, leave a comment. And if you really like it and you want to help us out more, come join our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash time. We have big plans for the show. We want to be able to do live shows. We want to be able to start a foundation where we give people like Lance the grants that he would need in order to be able to pursue his study to great depth. Because the guy has a day job and he's doing this just in his spare time, which is extraordinary. So... Any money that you donate to us on a monthly level, you know, three bucks a month is what we're going to eventually put towards supporting people like Lance who are doing independent research that is going to help push our understanding of nature and humankind forward. So come join us. We also have a weekly patron chat that we might, we've been kind of debating maybe doing twice a week just because it's it's so fruitful. We get a lot of we get a lot of good information from our patrons. We get a lot of really good discussion. And so this is something that we're kind of growing along the side. And I would love to have it be free and open, but I think that there's something important about it being a community that people buy into because then you have a sense of ownership of the place. It's not just some free for all. It's a place where you come and you cultivate it. You you are a part of what we're growing. And so 
Come by the Patreon, check it out. If you don't like it, you can always leave after a month. But we're at patreon.com slash demystifysign. So at least consider it. If you don't have any money, that's cool. Please just share the podcast with somebody you think would enjoy it. It's the only way that we reach new people. And obviously growing the channel is absolutely critical to getting the best quality guests. That's one of the first things they look at. So you can really help by doing almost nothing and uh, sharing it. Give it a like and subscribe to the channel. Enjoy the conversation. We'll see you next time. The scientific revolution starts now. Let, let me just start with a disclaimer, though, that, that my views are not those of my employer. <laughs> so since I work for, as a geologist for a government agency, my, uh, my views are just my own. Mm, so mm. I, I have to toe the line a little bit too, as far as, uh, you are not an agent of the state. No, no. And I have to make, and I'm not even going to say which agency I worked for this time. Um, because we're supposed to report, you know, everything that we talk about. Um, Lance Weaver, anonymous agent of the state. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I, I try to stay pretty mainline in my, in my science, but I have kind of my, my topics and, and the two that are completely off from what other people would 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 on camera agree with. <laughs> Got it. Are the pull shift for sure that we talked about last time, and then what we're going to be talking about right now, you know, which is kind of my pet um, scientific interest, which is geoarchaeology. So even though all my training is in geology, like I I've been super into geoarchaeology for a good twenty years, um, really well versed in it. And so, and I'm not going to talk about basically um, cultural diffusion between the old world and the new world. And I and I think what I've assembled, like you'll see little parts of what I'm going to talk about on other people's site. You know, even kind of more of the pseudoscience sites like Graham Hancock, and then we'll talk about little parts of it. But I think the way that I've compiled it and so, and a good amount of my own stuff that I've put together, like, makes such a a persuasive argument in my mind that I can't really see anyone not believing it it's kind of it's kind of like the ice age stuff like once you see it it's the visual that's so powerful that it, that it makes it almost impossible to deny that there's something to it you know nice like just, i'm excited yeah like just like that ice cap it's like once you see the ice cap and then you check check into the science of it and be like oh that really is where the, everyone agrees the periphery of the ice cap was so how could it not be a, a it's a, funny a, i've tested that out on so many different expert people since we had that conversation i keep bringing up the point that the ice caps in the wrong place over greenland and it's really come it comes as a surprise to 100 percent of people i've talked to and, and nobody's denying it they're just like huh yeah it's this like blank look for a second and then they move on to whatever they're an expert at and and i think if you talk about it without the visual a lot of people will deny it you know they'll be like oh mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. but then once you see the visual then it's kind of like oh man you know, maybe at first they'll be like, wait, well, let me double check. Are we sure that those are, that is the periphery of where we know the continental ice sheet was, you know? And, and I mean, it, it doesn't take much looking into it to be like, oh yeah, that, that is it. That is the consensus. Yeah. And then I've heard like ocean currents might cause it. I, I hear that as a go-to usually after you reach the point of, oh yes, it does appear this way. Yeah. But, yeah. and I don't know about that really. 
I mean, it fits into this kind of the same argument as the, because the ocean currents supposedly are then affecting the Hadley cells and the weather patterns right. that bring moisture in. But then, yeah, once again, you bring in the Antarctica argument and the fact that the same, the same type of situation is happening in Canada. You've got a central area of Canada that was pretty far away from any kind of current, you know, any kind of weather current that would actually bring the only, the only thing that brings storms into the central part of northern Yukon territory is the jet stream. The same, the same patterns that you have coming into Siberia. And not only that, the central Siberia patterns break down once you try and get over into eastern Siberia, right? You can't, you can't say that eastern Siberia was an Arctic desert. No one's going to say that. It's, it's not true. You've got massive um, weather cells coming from the Pacific up into the easternmost part of Siberia. They get massive amounts of snow right now. And to suggest that it was somehow different in the Ice Age and that Western Siberia wouldn't have created a continental glacier in the same way that Greenland and Scandian ice sheet and the Lernstrand ice sheet. You know, that's just, just like, honestly, it's ridiculous. I have had some people who have argued with me about it, but I think that once you kind of like persist in some of these, like, let's go down and actually investigate what you're saying and let's actually get on a map and look at Manchuria, you know, and, and, and uh, Eastern Siberia, then they, I think for the most part, most people have to be like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, unless they're just so like indoctrinated and entrenched in some idea that they're not willing to, to think, to reason, to think of reason, you know. Mm -hmm. Have you thought any more about mechanism for that pole shift since we had our conversation? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, the mechanism is something I've been thinking about for 20 years and, and still my, my thought that there's something celestial going on, that it's gotta be something in the universe. You know, I, I, I'm not completely sold on my mechanism. It's just the best one that I've come up with. Um, and you know what? The, the other thing I'm not completely sure about is what we see in the ice cores. I'm constantly, like, like re-looking at the actual data for the ice cores, you know, especially Volstock and those, to wonder if, like, is what we're seeing in those cores, are we certain that, that periodicity that we're seeing is the coming and going of actual um, ice ages. Like, what do you yeah, think it could be? Well, what, what if, so it's, all we're seeing is a proxy, it's mostly oxygen isotopes, right? And they've also got like carbon dioxide, you know, analysis that they're doing to the ice cores, but it's mostly the oxygen isotope that they're using as a proxy for weather. But, but what if it's not, um, like we see, we see like a pretty stark rise and a fall and a, and a rise and a fall. But do we know that every one of those rises is an ice age and every one of those falls is not an ice age? Or could it be that there was just, that there's actual changes, atmospheric changes, just like we're seeing now hmm. with the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that, that the atmosphere is changing, the ocean chemistry is changing, but that we are, we are making an assumption in that proxy and saying, yeah, every time it goes up to its height, that there's a full glaciation. And yeah, I wonder how volcanism plays into that because that's the one thing that I've started to really notice affects climate and atmospheric composition and water content more than anything. And I wonder if anybody's looked at those correlations. Probably, I just don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely have ash layers that they're trying to correlate with you know volcanoes erupting 
It just hard. seems like an intractable cor- problem of correlation, right? Because you have so many different things that are happening. And what you have to do as somebody who's trying to tell the story is figure out how to relate all of them to one another. And it's not, it's not a particularly straightforward... Yeah, we have this terrible ability to see what we're looking for. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of the, the demon of the scientist. I mean, so are you, are you suggesting that, because the, the current model is that as you see these atmospheric changes, the, the solar radiation has a different effect on the planet, and so you see temperature changes as a result of increased greenhouse gases. And so are you saying that maybe the greenhouse gases are decoupled from temperature changes? <clears throat> that, well, in essence, yeah. Like, so that they're not as tightly coupled as we suggest they are. Hmm. Right. So if we flash up the, the chart right now that actually shows the oxygen isotope data, which is just kind of the strongest proxy we have, and then maybe the carbon dioxide data too, are we sure that every time we see one of those highs – we see the oxygen isotope level go to, I can't remember what the unit is. Are we sure that that is an ice age? Or could it just be that that, that actually, those aren't completely tied together, right? And, and, and this would be kind of my, my main argument, right? Because when, when it comes to dating the ice age, we've got like two different methods that we have to use. So we can use radiocarbon dates to about 40,000 years ago. Right. But the last ice age ended like what, 20,000 years ago. I mean, it ended, you know, 11, 12,000 years ago, but it hit its peak there at like 20,000 years ago. So then the previous ice age before it, we can barely even carbon date. Mm. Like there's so little carbon once you get to 40,000, and there's basically zero when you get to like 60,000, which some people try to use it to, that we then have to switch to the, um, the uranium dating. So now we're switching to another dating method, which introduces all sorts of problems that we really, we can't, we can't be sure. It's not as a home run when it comes to the later ice ages. Even the dating of them is problematic. Like, you can't. It's like the Grand Slam would be finding some instance where those isotopic patterns didn't match the appearance of climate changes of, of well, different it, sorts. They didn't match the evidence of glaciation. Mm-hmm. What, and what's the evidence of glaciation? It's the terminal moraines. It's the mm. dirt. It's the geology. It's like when we actually go to Scandinavia or, um, I mean, we can go lots of different places and we can find a terminal rain and then date that terminal rain because that terminal rain is physical evidence that the ice sheet advanced and retreated. Mm. But so with the terminal moraine, if you're dating the moraine, aren't you just dating the age of the rocks that are in it if you're using uranium dating? Right. When, I mean, with radiocarbon dating, you're looking for organics, you know, wood or peat or whatever. And then, yeah, as you get older, you're trying to use, like, you know, crystals, basically. So, but yeah, all of those dating methods carry with them their own assumptions, their own problems, where we could have issues with our models. And yeah, my, and my whole thing is this, like, are we sure that there was really 10 ice ages with a periodicity of what is it, 40,000 years to begin with, and then it grows to 100,000 years the further you go back. Are we sure about that periodicity? Are we sure those are even ice ages? I, I don't know that, like, it'd be interesting to get a group of real experts to see them to kind of, because we, we could all debate the data, I know the data, and say, are we really drawing the great conclusions here? Like, are, are we sure about this? We're sure about the more recent stuff. Like, I can tell you, as far as the last ice age, we are 100% sure, because there's so much evidence. But every ice age, every 
every growing glacier kind of tends to destroy the evidence of the ones previous, right? So I can go to Salt Lake and find a terminal or the Rockies or, or anywhere in Canada, you know, I, I can go and find an actual terminal moraine from this prograding glacier. And I know about the last ice age and I can date it pretty sure. But when we, the further back we go, the more the evidence has been destroyed, the more we're having to rely on more tentative dating methods, more tentative evidence that's been destroyed. And so now it's just kind of like little pieces here and there that we have to speculate and make assumptions on. Anyways, Is so there that much evidence that's, uh, that's ocean floor sediment related? Because it seems like you'd have a lot of runoff and a lot of accumulation of, of sediments from rivers that, are, that should be associated with glaciation. Yeah. And they, and they have lots of cores, but then is that, is that a home run? Because how, how do you see an ice age in a core? Like what suddenly you see the layers changing colors. Is that what you're going to use? You're going to, you're going to date them and, and look at their thickness and be like, Oh, look, well, this core, it seems like now we have a package of different colored sediment that dates to about the period that we think was a glacial or an interglacier. And we're going to make interpretations on that, whether it be in the ocean or a lake, they've got, you know, lakes that they're doing the same thing and trying to make interpretations of different colors or different packages of sediment and saying, well, this is an ice age. This is not an ice age, but that data. Yeah. One thing you mentioned last time was like how little color mattered in terms of geology. I was kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and in Scandinavia, they have kind of that exacting, they're, they're kind of making assumptions saying, well, we found these lakes and we think that in the winter, the sediment that's flowing in is kind of one color. And in the summer, when the spring melt happens, we get another color. Um, but that's a pretty big assumption. I've tested that assumption myself. I've gone to a bunch of different reservoirs that are only 50 years old and looked at all the packages and been like, can I see mm. any kind of annual spring flood in this? And it's like, mm, not, not that I would, mm. you'd be, you'd be grasping straws and just making a tentative maybe that maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but how can you prove that? Mm. I mean, I think that that's the, that's maybe the most solid criticism of anything that's studying the deep past, which is that we have models that are secondary and maybe even tertiary readouts of something that happened. And then from that, we build a story and the story is built upon a tremendous amount of, of, of modern mythology because yeah. we have stories that we need to be able to tell about the way that the world is about the power of science about the power of research and if you if you start to say well hey we can't really say stuff about anything that's beyond the last ice age you undermine an entire field of study and that's not it's not particularly fashionable to do i think that's a really difficult thing to to, to get anyone to agree to because they've spent their life working on it and their life, their, their life's work is tied into the mythology of the present, which is what the planet does and how climate is affected and all of the different changes. And so that's kind of an uphill battle to get anyone to, to start to reconsider it from that point, because everybody's got a set of interests that they have to maintain. And it's not even something that you can really blame them for because that's just the system in which we all we all live. But isn't it kind of strange that the most uncertain pieces of our distant history are some of the most closely guarded in terms of the narrative? I mean, okay, so there was actually so there was something going on uh, going around on Twitter today, which was the editor in chief of Science. His name's like Holger or something. Was went on this big tirade about how it's important for 
big science publications to endorse political candidates. And there was a there was a chart that compared the perspectives of you know people that are registered Democrats versus registered Republicans, and the Democrats in general, or the people who identify as being on the left, believe that the job of science is to take a political stand. People on the right think that the job of science is to, and again, this is broad strokes. I have no idea who did the poll or how they did it. I think it was a Gallup poll. But the the people who identify as right leaning believe that the job of science is to just objectively collect data and look at it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we've seen play out over the course of the last few years, because there's this belief in the fact that science is, it is a value, it, it, it carries within it inherent values about what you should do. And the scientists are the people who you should look to, who can tell you the stories of how the natural world works, and then also what you should do on the basis of those stories. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's just the time in which we live. We, people believe that the science is not just the objective collection of data. It is also informative as to what you should do. <laughs> right. I mean, the problem with that is, is assuring its objectivity. If we could assure that, that science was truly objective, then it's like, yeah, sure, it, it should inform all of our political decisions and all of our personal decisions. But there's no such thing as object, truly objective science. Right. And people who think that it's objective, you should be scared of those people. Like anybody who's (laughs) like saying, yeah, this is absolutely objective. It's like, no, you should realize that person's level of intelligence hasn't, they're they're not introspective and circumspective enough to understand that all science carries with it its bias. Mm. That the majority, I I shouldn't say all, because there's some science that everyone can agree on. Like everyone can agree on the sun, you know, things that we can all see. But there's such huge swaths of science especially when it comes to prehistory which are based on assumptions that are not directly observed observable um so yeah to, to try and like it, it kind of reminds me of like the olden days where every king's court had their whether it be a religious person or whether it be like their sorcerer you know and it's like they're gonna re- they're gonna rely on that astrologer to to make their decisions are we doing the same thing you are if you're trusting science as being 100 percent objective I mean, I think that we are doing the same thing because we don't have a better way of making decisions, right? Because we we live in a time where everybody kind of recognizes that you should make your decisions on the basis of data. You should be rational about the decisions that you make because your emotions are clouded by your cognitive biases, your perspectives are informed by all of these things that are deeply not objective. And so we turn to science because there is a belief that has been cultivated very, very carefully over the course of the last at least 50, 60 years, that the scientist is is almost not human. The scientist is this objective eyeball that just happens to look at the world and relay the truth. <laughs> and, and you want that to be the case. I want that to be the case. Yeah. I want to be able to say that if there is data, that you can lean on it. But something that we've come across a lot is just how complex so many of these methods are. Yeah, yeah. The oxygen isotopes are—they're a real headache to try to make sense of. Actually, like, there's so much, there's so many assumptions that go into any of this date, these dating methods. Yeah, and some of them are testable and reliable, but the there's so many factors that go into the methods, and most people try to split hairs about problems with the methods, and and they don't think about the underpinning assumptions about where 
what's what's the life of this sample before you know where has it yeah. been what was the world like yeah all the tons of assumptions but even and, if you look at the data like the trace of the oxygen isotopes you see, there's there's a crazy thing because you can see that within recent history like 40 50,000 years back there's a lot of data points and there's a lot of shifts. And as you start to go farther and farther back in time, these shifts become broader and the curves change in, in terms of just how finely sampled they appear. Right. And so you can see that as you look back in time, there's this, there's a, it's like Vaseline on the lens almost. It yeah. glosses, it glosses the, the data space over and you don't hear people really talking about what that means. Yeah. Yeah, and we should we should bring that into the real world. Um, let me drive forward kind of our discussion in a couple of different directions. So, I, I think the first thing that we should talk about is um, basically like Graham Hancock and and Mario, some of those ideas about like a master civilization, you know, and because because what I'm going to be talking about and the evidence I'm going to be showing kind of fits into that. Right. And 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 I'm going to be kind of debating and and not believing a lot of their assumptions. Right. I'm going to be like like the typical scientist who poo-poos on these people and calls them pseudoscientists and says that their their data isn't good. But I think that maybe the job of of a good scientist is that if if we're gonna like if we're gonna bash down ideas, like we're gonna really show the public like every, they need to have the data like that. That's why the visualization is so important to really help the public understand what is the data, what data is truly reliable, what data is built on lots of assumptions that we could be wrong on, be totally honest on how strong our stance on the data is, make sure that we, we never get politics involved in science because the second we do, our science becomes so biased that we can't see straight, which we've seen absolutely when it comes to the word that shall not be mentioned, ancient weather, you know. So um, maybe, and that, maybe that's something I want to just kind of start by talking about. So mm -hmm. the discussion like that Mario that, that you had on um, and the idea that, that maybe there are archaeological sites out there that instead of just being 10,000 years old, like some of the major ones that we see like Jericho, um, uh, that, that they're actually his his idea, you know, that they're like twenty thousand years old or forty thousand years old, and that they predate the last ice age. Um, sites built on top of other sites, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we can we can start with that really quick. Yeah. What do you think? Um, okay. So the first the first thing that we need to really get clear before we start talking about prehistory about you know all of the archaeological evidence from let's say from early Egypt all the way back to the Ice Age um, is, is how we date them right so that's radiocarbon dating it's the de facto dating method even though that there's other ones that are kind of built around it right radiocarbon dating is really the main one um, and then of course you know we use sequencing and stuff like that in between that yeah and then there's tree dating for stuff for the last about two thousand years and maybe even going back another thousand but the really tree dating stops being super reliable about two thousand years ago about time christ okay so my um i don't know maybe actually i'm 
I wonder if we want to go into something else and then backtrack and go into that. I think, man, make yourself comfortable. Just lay it out. Yeah. Okay. I think <laughs> we're all I think, friends here. It's think, all good. I think I'm going to share to be my formal. screen and I'm just going to jump right into an argument for transoceanic travel Woo! and essentially <laughs> a a master, you could say a <clears throat> higher civilization that existed and then actually declined. Mm, you're right? selling books for Graham now. Yeah, if I'm going to be selling selling Graham books here. <laughs> okay, so let me. Let me start here. I'm going to show evidence that I think shows really without reasonable doubt that there was transoceanic travel um, from at least 600 BC from the Mediterranean. And, and then I'll go on to even showing it from Asia, but for sure from Egypt. Okay. Let's do it. So this is completely um, denied by mainstream archaeologists. Right. And it has been since they decided that all Native Americans, that's North and South America, came across the Bering Land Bridge, you know, and that's a decision they arbitrarily made in the late 1800s. And since then, any hint that it's like, well, people other than maybe the Vikings, you know, a thousand AD, any hint that people came from the old world to, to the new world has been pretty much just poo pooed and shot down. Well, the genetic, they, they always lean on the genetic evidence. Well, right? they do now, right? They do in the last 15 years. But I, I do think that there is some consensus that there was some Polynesian, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. Intermingling. But, yeah. but hold on. The way that the genetic evidence works is that they look at the populations and they identify unique uh, polymorphisms in that population. And so if you have a much earlier transit where the populations mixed and then separately evolved and so would have completely unique polymorphisms that I don't think that you'd necessarily be able to tell. Like, I, I don't there's know. There's a lot of debate about, like, there's well, really, really deep back anomalous. Probably the too. best analog when it comes to the genetic ev evidence is that I, that I see that there's a lot of literature on anyway is Britain, like the Romans in Britain. So there's very, very little genetic signature of Roman Britain. When you look in a, a modern, you know, sampling of Britons and try and find uh, Italian and Roman DNA, there's basically none. Because those people didn't want to sleep with the Romans. I mean, <laughs> right? But is honestly, that's one thing that always occurs to me in these genetic studies. I'm like, these populations probably hated each other. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some pillaging and stuff, but that doesn't mean there's going to be an entire bloodline that survives. But well, is it you, also you, possible that Rome didn't have as pure of a bloodline as as we think? Pure blood. Even more, I think that the consensus is that when you have a small number, like you can have a small number of some group come in and completely conquer a region, like the Romans did completely alter their society, build massive fortifications, Hadrian's Wall, just like alter the entire society and rule that society, but not really leave a genetic imprint because there's just not that many of them. You know, maybe they're 5% of the population, maybe they're even less, maybe they're 2% of the population, but they are a dominant 2%. But then after they leave, a lot of them leave, a lot of them after, because they've oppressed the people, they get murdered, right? It's like a hundred years after they're, the Romans mm. collapsed. It's like, uh, if there's anyone who's a son of the Roman, let's kill him. And so they all have to flee. You know, mm. we see that in modern imperialistic societies as well. So it's not hard to believe. And so, even in modern times, and even in the developed world, people do tend to mate with people of their own background. It's right. Still, but it's still a thing. Genetically, it gets drowned out. 
if you right have, if you have a super small sampling and those people end up mating and so they do enter the gene pool um it, i can't remember how many generations it are it is but there's papers on that and, and it has names for it the genetic signature drowns out it dies out essentially mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that that English study of Roman DNA is mm-hmm. probably one of the best analogs that we can really help people understand that it's like you could have people come into the Americas from the old world and they could have enormous impacts. In fact, they could have conquered the people to some extent and to certain reasons, but then their DNA signature could have died out. Interesting. And so when uh, when we talk about evidence for Egyptian transoceanic travel, what era are we talking about? Um, so let me share my screen. The first evidence shows up around 800 BC. Um, let's see, screen share here. Yeah, I wanted to mention too that there, while it is wholeheartedly denied by mainstream archaeologists, there are a plethora of anomalous pieces of evidence all over the place in terms of artifacts. There's a bunch of, uh, one of the most tantalizing ones to me was there's this hoard of coins found on an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that dates pretty solidly to, I don't know, BC era Phoenicians. And there's, there's a number of these little things that people just kind of shrug their shoulders at. I, I was reading this morning, there's a Wikipedia article on all of the, you know, anomalous pre-Columbian contact possibilities. And one of the pieces of evidence was this, the appearance of the sweet potato in Polynesia. I and, saw that. And I think that the there's some consensus that it might have shown up in Polynesia 100,000 years ago. And the explanation for it is that it drifted on ocean currents <laughs> to Polynesia. <laughs> I've, yeah, it's like, it's, like, there's that's Because I just read something on that recently where they are finding a lot of DNA, uh, especially the most of the studies now are focused on Brazil, Colombia, and uh, the southern Mesoamerican area. But there's show, there's, they see Polynesian DNA in the Americas. But then I think the article I saw was trying to say that, that the sweet potato probably came late. Hmm. Not there's so some early. carbonized plant seeds. I forget what kind of plant. Also found in India that date, like, I forget, I want to say really far, like 2000 BC, which is very strange. They're, they're indigenous to the Americas. Sorry. So, I mean, like, the, base, the, the baseline is that there's weird stuff. There's weird stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff. And each one of them can be written off. But as a whole, it, it at least paints a picture of some degree of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And let me go through four or five of them really quick right now. So, can you yes, guys it. see my screen here? Yes. Yep. Okay, so this is the first example. Um, so here on the left, this is Monument 19 from Laventa, right? So this radiocarbon dates between... And maybe if you could just describe the picture as you go to for people who are listening, that'd be awesome. Okay. Yep, so the Laventa one here on the left, dating between 900 and 400 BC, right? Radiocarbon dating. Um, this is a massive monolith, right? So this thing is like 10 feet tall, 9 feet tall. And you've got this kind of serpent, right? So you can see it's rattle there. It's got, it's obviously a, a rattlesnake only. Its face almost looks a little bit more like a dragon than a snake. But a lot of people speculate this as being one of the earliest occurrences of Quetzalcoatl, right? Um, at any rate, it's kind of like a, a, almost a, a bird looking, an avian looking serpent, but for sure a snake. But inside of it is the big thing. You've got this guy, right? And he almost seems to have like a, 
a fish bottom, but his mask, can you guys see this mask? He's, he's very clearly wearing an eagle mask, mm. right? So he is meant to look like an avian, right? Mm. This is a bird man. He's trying to wear a mask that makes him look like a bird. And he's holding this little satchel or bag, right? And is he snuggled up with Quetzalcoatl or is he in his belly or what's <laughs> yeah, going on? Yeah, he's kind of like sitting in his, in his belly, basically. I mean, it's, it's making a cave-like shape. Mm. Um, and we can talk about that later because that's actually a motif that you find in Egypt. But the more powerful thing, so here, so this, right, this is a mummy Olmec in 800 BC. Um, but this motif of kind of the bird man lasts all the way to Teotihuacan. So here you've got like a Teotihuacan type of um, bird man who's dressed as a bird and has a mask, the exact same as what we see in this thing that dates from 800 BC. This guy is living, you know, between 400 and 880, right? And, this, and then even into the Aztec times, they still use this motif of this mm. anthropomorphic avian man, the bird man. And what are the time periods? So this, uh, the Olmec monument is, you said, 800 to 400 BC. Yeah. Teotihuacan is what 400, time period? 880. Okay. Teotihuacan kind of dies out about 600 AD. Um, but yeah, but the motif still used among the Toltecs and the Aztecs. So all the way to you know, 1500 AD, they're still doing this bird man motif. Okay, so compare that over here to these Assyrian motifs. Okay, so these they call Horus figures, right? Um, but these are from Nimrud. So the really well-known archeological ruins of Assyria in upper Iraq by Mosul. Okay. And here, and these are all like in the British Museum. There's a lot of them in the Louvre, right? They're super, super famous. We're gonna talk a lot about these um, wall motifs because there's more than meets the eye to them. And the Nimrod motif, it looks, I can, I can just barely see it. It looks like 800 BC. Yeah, about the same time. So they're all they all carrying these suitcases around too. Yeah, and that's the big thing, right? And this this is something that you'll see on Graham Hancock and some of these guys' site because they've noticed that it's like, like what the heck? Like they're carrying the same bag. Like if they were just Birdman, you'd be like, yeah, I mean that's a common motif. People like to dress like animals. They dress like cats and stuff too. But where they're holding this bag, this super similar bag. I mean, if you can see up, it is pretty crazy actually. Like, what are the chances that a group of Native Americans who evolved separately for 10,000 years coming across Siberia just happened to create a birdman carrying a similar bag? It looks like a Gucci bag or something. Yeah, because, I mean, like, you can imagine that the bag is a common motif, but the idea that it would be such a similar bag is a little weird. Yeah, totally weird. And accompanied with the birdman. Yeah, and, if, and even if, if this was it, like if this is the only thing you're looking at, you could still, as an archaeologist, be skeptical and be like, yeah, that is mm -hmm. pretty crazy, but maybe not enough to overturn the whole of our scientific consensus on no, you know, cultural diffusion between the new and old world. But when you combine it with these next things I'm going to show, then I honestly think to, de to deny these, you have to start to like become crazy. <laughs> well, you had one more thing on that slide, which was uh, Gobeki Tepe. Yeah, yeah. And I'll talk more about that. But yeah, you've got the same bag and bird motif in Gobeki Tepe. And what era is Gobeki Tepe? I'm trying to like make a timeline for myself. So Gobeki Tepe, like um, Jericho, is one of the earliest really advanced Neolithic sites in the world. It's like 10 to 8,000 BC. So it's really, that's, that's, so do you, okay, well, you said we'll get to it. Okay. Yeah. 
And I mean, I would just just throw out that I think the Gobeki Tepe and Jericho, there's there's really only a couple really isolated sites that that they look a lot like Gobeki Tepe is a very circular um, structure that looks almost like Stonehenge. And there's some other sites in Spain that look almost identical to it, right? On some of the islands of Spain, like literally almost identical to Gobeki Tepe. But they, they're they all late or middle Bronze Age. So they're all dating to like 2000, 3000 BC. I think that those should be suspect. Like the fact that the archaeological community um, has just kind of accepted them wholeheartedly as being the dates that they, that they give, the radiocarbon dates, I think is a mistake and shows um, kind of a lack of, of skepticism that should be there, right? Because radiocarbon dates, it's, it's super common to find radiocarbon dates in a site that just like don't match anything else and you throw them out, right? Because it's so easy to have contaminated samples. Well, the same is actually true for entire sites. If you have a site that's sitting on some kind of a carbonate, right? And especially if it's a pulverized carbonate in any way, or if there's a groundwater system that's bringing the carbonates through the subsurface, which is the case in Jericho, um, and, in, and in the case of Gobeki Tepe, um, it's kind of a polarized carbonate. Um, when, when, this, when it goes way older than it's supposed to, you should suspect that there's probably some contamination of the radiocarbon dates because groundwater or something is bringing up um, carbon within the limestone and mixing it within the carbon of the samples that you're getting and giving you an older date, hmm. right? Because there's no radiocarbon in limestone or caliche. And so it's really common. It's the same is true in caves. Like really often you'll find caves or you'll find samples in caves that are way older than any of the surrounding archaeological artifacts. And it's pretty often that archaeologists will be like, oh yeah, we're going to trust these dates because it'll make us famous, right? They can publish. We found something that's 10,000 years old. It's it's mm. older than anything else. And so now we can publish on it. When it's like, no, you should you should be suspect of that date. If it's in a cave, especially if it's a wet cave, that's a limestone cave. It's like anything that's touching limestone can be contaminated. Mm. So you should be suspect of any radiocarbon date, any single radiocarbon date that is an aberration from those around it and any single site that is an aberration from those around it. So even though everyone loves to talk about Gobeki Tepe as being the oldest, I, I mean, it, it, it matches with Jericho and Jericho's suspect too. I, I think that those should not be like as readily accepted. They should be met with far more skepticism than they are within the archaeological community. But let's go back to the story though. Um, so let's go to the next slide really quick and just after the bird man, let's see if there's other motifs that are shared between the old world and the new world. Okay, so here we've got on the left, um, these kind of Horus griffin animals, right? And you can see them kind of trampling a captive, right? So it's basically a bird lion trampling a captive. <laughs> and these are found um, also just right near Nimrud in the Assyrian um, culture of Iraq, near Masul. <laughs> right? And this is like a tiny little ivory. So this is probably like, you know, six inches by three inches or something like that. But then you look over here at... Um, Chalcanzingo, which is only like 100 miles away from our last one, from Laventa, and you've got a very similar stone motif to what we saw in Laventa, but here you've got the same type of like bird lion, and in this case you can't really see its tail, but there's other examples of it where it definitely has a very lion-like tail, hmm. right, and a bird-like face, 
very similar to that bird-like snake that we saw before, and it's trampling a captive in the exact same way. It has lost the wings, though. Yeah, so no wings on this one. Um, but, right, one is in the same area as our last one, Assyria, and one is in the same area of Mesoamerica as our last one. So it's it's our second kind of like, hmm, that seems kind of fishy. And maybe you might think, well, this one isn't quite as quite as like much as a home run as the last one. But when we take them together, it's yet more evidence that it's like, yeah, I mean, really, could that have evolved separately after 10,000 years of non-contact? And they both are like doing this same, like trampling a captive motif. Maybe, maybe not. Let's go and see if there's more though. So then move on to the next one. Okay, so this, if you can see this figurine, let me turn on my laser pointer here on the left, mm-hmm. right? This Etruscan figurine was found under a second subfloor um, in the city of Toluca. Hmm. And this one is one that archaeologists, right? The, the last ones, the archaeologists probably would have just denied and been like, oh, they were planted or something, you know, if they were small. But because they're as big as cars, there's no doubt that they are authentic archaeological finds. But this one is like this big, right? It's like two inches in diameter. It's a tiny little head. And so archaeologists said this is a hoax. Hmm. But if you get into the literature and actually read the archaeology, like this is a, a distinguished archaeological team who was doing this dig, and his grad students found this. And they they swore that they did not plant it, right? They've got like their affidavit saying, we did not plant this. We found this. But yet the, the greater community around him is like, oh, well, that's so obviously Etruscan because like we see here on this on the slide, all these other little heads, mm. these figurines are really common in the old world. They find them everywhere from Italy to Turkey to Greece. But they're li- I was reading about this one this morning a little bit. These are later figurines though, right? These are from like the Ro- late Roman period. So I have my dates on here. Some of them are, but you can see this, this Etruscan figurine at the bottom left. That's from the 4th century BC, right? This other one, 4th century BC. This other one in Pakistan, 4th, 5th century BC. Mm. This one, 5th to 4th century BC, mm. right? Which is which is when, so the, the subfloor that they were digging in, um, I'm trying to remember the radiocarbon date on it in Toluca, but I'm pretty sure it is BC. I think, I think it's close to 100 BC or something like that. But it's right next to um, Calico or... Um, Anyway, the oldest ruins in the Valley of Mexico are pretty old. They date to 1000 BC. Hmm. There was there was two major population centers in the Valley of Mexico that date to 1000 BC, even older than La Venta. But the archaeological community seems to agree that that little statue head is from the Etruscan Roman period, yeah. like second century. Yeah, they just they just think it was a plant, right? Exactly. They can't believe that that there was transoceanic travel, and so they they come up with whatever just most logical description, which is, oh, well, somebody planted it there. And to be fair, there's been a ton of plants, right? The, yeah, yeah. There's, it, there's a real cesspool of contamination. There's been elaborate hoaxes going all the way back to the early years of the Colombian conquest. Absolutely. And if, and if this was an isolated thing, right? If, if this Etruscan figurine weren't in the midst of all these other strong correlations, I would dismiss it too. I'd be like, there's no way that this is, this must've been planted. 
But when you group it with these other five things that are on, you, you can't falsify and you can't fake them because they're car sized boulders. Mm. Um, then suddenly you have to relook at some of this data that you just dismissed earlier and be like, huh, mm. well, maybe that is actually evidence that we were, we too readily dismissed. Mm. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. The Zappa um, Stella, right? It's a pretty kind of famous, um, like I say, car sized uh, rock motif, rock relief in Izapa Mesoamerica. So our other ones were kind of at the Isthmus of Tehuantepec on the west coast of Mesoamerica. This is actually on the east coast of the kind of the border of Guatemala and Mexico. Um, and here on the left, you can kind of see a drawing of the stone, right? There's the stone itself. And here's kind of a drawn out version of it. But the motifs in this are, are really, really interesting. Yeah, can you describe it for us? Yeah, I mean, so, so look at this. You've got this tree, right? And and this 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 thing's kind of like a little bit famous because I don't know if you've heard of like among Mormonism, right? Mormonism has been pushing this idea that there was transoceanic travel for since the eighteen early eighteen hundreds. Yeah, it's like baked into the Book of Mormon, right? Right, right. And so a lot of people took this. A lot, a lot of the Mormon community have been kind of pushing this for you know, 30 years is like, oh, this is evidence of transoceanic travel. But the way that they pushed it was kind of in a, in a foolish way. Like they kind of like said, oh, well, this is, a, this is a reference to something that it's in the Book of Mormon, um, which when you look closer at that argument kind of falls apart. Mm. But I say, no, look at this as a comparison to Egyptian artwork, not to anything in the Book of Mormon, to Egyptian artwork. And, and tell me once again, if these motifs could actually just be coincidence of two <laughs> separate uh, cultures that evolved independently for 10,000 years. I, I think there's absolutely no way. So okay. it's like this fluted tree that appears in both the Egyptian and the Mesoamerican depiction. There's some figures there too. What's the deal with the, the people? Yep. And so not only do we have this tree, right? Um, that we see both all four of these Egyptian um, artwork things on the right, right, have this sacred tree, right? They do call it the tree of life. In some cases, the Assyrian ones even get called the tree of life, but it's basically a sacred tree for the Egyptians. Um, and there's, there's a lot of writings about this in Egyptian. It's well known. And there was a goddess of this tree, right? And the goddess like came out of the tree and gave offerings to people. Right? And there's different names for the goddess. Um, but so I think the Hathor is what they call the goddess of the tree, mistress of the sycamore, they, mm. they call it often. But look in the Mesoamerican one. So you also have kind of this tree, but you've got this individual coming out of the tree, like offering to these supplicants. Like, look how you have these two supplicants to the left almost like they're there to, you know, get something from the sacred tree in the exact same way that the Egyptian one does, right? Mm -hmm. So you see on every, every case of the Egyptian one, you've got these one or two supplicants and this lady in the tree, mm -hmm. and you've got the same thing in the Mesoamerican one. And if that was it, you know, maybe you'd think, oh, maybe that's coincidence, even though it's like, seriously, how could that be coincidence, even the tree motif itself? But, but let's keep going. Let's look at the second one. This one is the home run. Like, I don't think there's any way I mean, it's, it is bewildering to me how anyone could see this as being a coincidence. 
There's no way. There's no way. And can you describe that one for us? <laughs> so look on either side of this sacred tree, right? You've got a. This bird. is in the Mesoamerican. This is the Mesoamerican Zapastella, right? So you've got a birdman on the left and then a feline man on the right, right? So in this motif of all these kind of like gods drawn in kind of a Mayan um, artwork motif almost. You've got this bird man and this feline man. Well, mm-hmm. look at this relief in Egypt. That's crazy. Thoth and Sekhmet before Ramses too. And then in this case, Ramses is taking the place of um, Hathor or whatever. It's being the person in the sacred tree who's offering whatever to the people. And on either side, you've got the feline and the bird man, right? You've got Thoth and Sekhmet. So like to have those motifs all on different continents, like there's no way. How mm. on earth could you say that that is a coincidence? There's no way. But yeah, like it, the specificity of it, if it was the same drawing, but the the identity of the gods were different. I, can, I mean, I can imagine a coincidence, like trees are important for life. And right. so I can, I can understand the tree being a central motif because that's where you get fruits. And in order to get, in order to survive, you need the trees, they give you shelter, they give you the things that you, you build out of them. And so it seems pretty straightforward that you could have that, but the, the, the specifics of the illustration, I, th- I think you're, I think that that's, you're onto something. Yeah. And, and once you group it with the three that we've already looked at, mm-hmm. right, this isn't an isolated case. Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing a motif here of artifact after artifact correlating. So then we can keep going though. Right? So this Mesoamerican motif has this interesting earth bar that seems to be separating the underworld, kind of these waters of the underworld to the overworld. Well, that earth bar is also a very common Egyptian symbol, right? So you see over here at the right, where they've got these boats and they're always separated from this um, this snake. What is snake again? Um, I'm trying to remember what the snake's name is. Anyway, it's uh, this, oh, Apep, right? So the serpent god Apep. Apep's a super common motif in Egyptian artwork, right? And Apep kind of symbolizes like the, the Nile River, which symbolizes the underworld, right? And not only that, this boat motif is part of their whole Book of the Dead. Thing where it's like you sail on the boat to the underworld in the afterlife. But it's always that the overworld is separated from Apep and the waters beneath by this earth bar. Right. And you've got that same kind of earth bar and the same kind of like waters lapping up, you know, that you have in the Egyptian stuff. So now here we have like five different motifs that are all shared between the Egyptian artwork and this Izapa Stella. So once again, how how can you rationally be like, oh yeah, that's all just a coincidence? I mean, the water thing you see in ancients, you see it in every culture essentially. That and it makes sense that if you dig a well, water comes up, and then you see water at the edge of the land, and it makes sense that people would interpret uh, water to be down below the earth. But the stylizing is pretty captivating here. Yeah, because yeah, you have an almost infinite number of ways in which to to represent it yeah that's right exactly challenge like find find any other example in the world Mm. any other example of this kind of close congruity between art art motifs between cultures that never touched each other now i mean honestly like when you think about it rationally 
Just the fact that there are Mayan hieroglyphics and Mayan pyramids should be enough to make us think, huh, maybe there's some communication there. Like when you compare the South American cultures to Egypt, like the South American cultures, they don't have writing, right? They've got like little knots. They came Mm. up with a, a system of communication that had to do with knots. Well, that's what you'd expect from cultures that were separated by 10,000 years of evolution mm. to come up with completely divergent ideas that have no relationship to each other, right? Like the Kichi, the whole knot system versus mm. the old world. That, that's what you'd expect. Or, or Australia is another example where you've got these indigenous people who were separated for thousands of years. There's like very few similarities between them and the mainland, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the Mayans with their hieroglyphic writing and their pyramids, and now we see these art motifs in the Olmec, right? In the Mexican Highland culture and these early Mayan motifs. How can you, how can you dismiss that? Mm. Well, there's a number of links to the East as well, right? In terms of these hieroglyphics, I think that the Japanese language shares some similarity with the Mayan language in terms of the glyph structure, if I'm remembering my Michael Coe. Yeah, and properly. I'll go through that, right? Because Michael Coe has a very, um, like a well-known seminar basically on YouTube that you can go look up where he shows the correlations between the Mayans and the Angkor um, empire, right? So Angkor Wat and the Khmers in Southeast Asia, Right. Um, not only are their pyramids very, very similar, but the kicker for him, and it's, this is a funny one too, right? Because he gives this whole presentation showing how similar their pyramids are and how similar all this stuff is. And at the end, he like ends with this thesis that he says, well, and as scientists, we have to dismiss this all as coincidence. Mm. And, and then somebody in the audience, um, you can go look it up because it's hilarious, ask him a question. And he's like, well, what about the Balinese calendar? Like, haven't you noticed how absolutely similar the Balinese calendar is to the Mayan calendar? And, and he like, he stops and he like kind of, po- and he's like, right, I can't remember exactly how he puts it. But he's like, are you going to make me go there? Okay, <laughs> you're going to make me go there. And then he completely contradicts what he just said and said, yeah, it's, there's no doubt that there was culture diffusion here in my mind. My personal opinion is there's absolutely no way that you could have the similarities between the Balinese calendar and the Mayan calendar without culture diffusion. So disregard everything I just said about it being a coincidence, because I'm going to tell you now this, that now that you pressed me, my true opinion, even though before I had to walk the academic line, you know, and pretend like it maybe was just coincidence. But anyway, yeah, so there... I'll have some slides that show like this strong correlation between the pyramids um, in Southeast Asia and the Austronesian Empire, Java pyramids, and the Americas. Um, okay, so let me keep going. So this is Izapa Stella 25, the same archaeological site of Izapa, right? This is in West Mexico and Guatemala. You can see here, we've got this same kind of tree of life motif, only the bottom end of the tree is kind of an alligator. You see, he's like a crocodile Mm. type person. And you see that same earth bar that this guy's standing on, and then he's holding this scepter with some kind of symbol on top of it. Now, this this is uh, significant not only in and of itself, but if you look at the last slides that we were looking at, do you see that the bottom of this tree is kind of made to look a little bit like this same kind of almost like alligator god, especially in this rendition of it. Mm. You see how they're, they're kind of making the bottom of the tree be kind of like this, this crocodile god. 
So in this case, we really see what's going on with the crocodile god. And what's the scepter? Okay, and then this is the scepter right here that that guy is holding. But let's compare that to Egyptian motifs once again. So in Egypt, they have a crocodile god. His name is Sobek, right? And he is often seen, almost ubiquitously, he's almost always holding this waz scepter, right? So you see in these Egyptian motifs, they've got Sobek, the crocodile god, in front of the tree of life. See here, they've got the sacred tree, right? And then Sobek with his waz scepter. So you've got these same religious motifs and yet another art piece in Zappa. And so then I ask again, it's like, like for real, what are the chances that this is coincidence? What are the chances that people came across the Siberian Straits during the Ice Age, migrated their way to Mesoamerica, evolved independently from 14,000 BC to you know, 500 BC when these things are dated, and yet just happened to come up with all the same religious motifs as Egypt. With the bird gods, the Sobek god, the Waz scepter, the earth bar. It, 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 it baffles any reason, like in my mind, like, I don't, I don't know how you can even... The scepter is pretty different. Yeah, the scepter is not super convincing. Well, but... okay, so, but, but you got to think of what I'm... So we're not saying that some Egyptian that, that carried Egyptian artwork to Mesoamerica. Like these are Mesoamerican artworks. Mm, mm-hmm. And, and they could course. be separated for, for 100 years. Like maybe these people had come from Egypt and lived in Mesoamerica for 100 years. So they're not going to draw the exact same things. They're just going to draw the same motifs. Like, well, they're going to carry the stories probably more than anything, right? Right, because right, they're religious motifs, they're religious iconography. It's like the cross in Christianity, and it's like the Holy Grail and all these like strong religious motifs. They're not always drawn exactly the same. Like They take artistic license, but mm. it's just the presence of the religious icon itself that is, that is the convincing thing. And I would ask once again, like go to South America and try to find Sobek. You won't find them. Like, go to Australia and try and find Sobek. Go to New Zealand and try and find Sobek or any mm. of these gods. You won't find them. Mm-hmm. Not, not in this kind of stylistic similarity. No chance. Like, not, not, not even close. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you could find them somewhere like China, but China was in constant communication with the Middle East. That's an interesting story by itself, is the connection between the East and the West over land. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to get into more into that more too, because there's a lot of evidence that the Austronesian Empire, um, especially when you get to Angkor, was trading between China and Africa. Mm. So let me let me keep going. I mean, the way I've always rationalized these to myself is that there's fundamental human dramas that play out, and that we have a tendency to rediscover these in our mythologies and stories because. If a myth is this arch story that you tell, it's just the story of stories. You've just collected enough stories, then it seems like human experience would, to some extent, bubble out the same ideas. But the stylism is what's really captivating. Yeah. And, and I mean, the back. Think about what we were looking at with the, the bird the holding is weird. the back. That's it's weird. Like, really? Is that an innate stylistic yeah. idea? Like What's sure, in the maybe, bag? Yeah. Maybe an anthropomorphic beam where you've got like a bird man or a crocodile man. Maybe that could cross cultures. 
Did you come across any story of the bag? Like, what's what's the deal with the bag? I, I will tell you exactly what the bag is. Okay. When, when I tell you where the Temple of Solomon is. But uh, we'll, we'll I feel like there. Indiana Jones today. It's seriously, it, it seriously is Indiana Jones, man. It's so, it's so cool. <laughs> right, the Lost Temple of Solomon. All right, let's keep going a little bit here. Okay, so in North America, there's actually like lots of little artifacts that connect the, the Eurasian continent to um, the Americas, but they've all been dismissed, and probably rightly so, because like 90% of them seem like pretty obvious forgeries, right? Especially in the New Mexico, New Mexico area, there's just a lot of things that like seem that they're just super suspect. But there's a couple that, that maybe aren't so suspect that, that have been dismissed. Um, and these are just a couple of examples, like the Chief Joseph cuneiform tablet, right? This is just like a little tablet that was found um, with Chief Joseph, Joseph in the 1800s, late 1800s. The Harn cuneiform tablet, the Shawnee Creek Stone. You can look these all up on Wikipedia. They're all things that if, if they were on their own, any scientist would be right in dismissing them because they were suspect. They're not found by archaeologists. They're found in, in um, environments where it's like, yeah, maybe this was planted, you know, or maybe somebody brought this over. It's obviously a, an Assyrian artifact, but someone could. And these show some sort of hieroglyphics on them? Is that what we're looking they're at? They're cuneiform. Mm. So, right. So the, all the Assyrian artifacts that, we, that we've been drawing correlations with, Right, their main language is a, is cuneiform. Like the way they wrote their Assyrian language is in cuneiform, and it's a very distinctive kind of tick mark language that's almost more similar to Chinese and Japanese than to anything in the Middle East, um, even though it was pervasively used throughout the Babylonian and Assyrian empires. Um, but yeah, they find it in these little artifacts in the New World, and and they're all dismissed, and rightly so. I would have dismissed them too, except when now you start to tie all these things that I've already showed us, right? All these old world things, new world, then it makes, maybe we need to revisit a lot of these artifacts that have been dismissed because they're But no the timing of this is, the timing of this is crazy, right? Because the, the stuff that we've been talking about so far has been largely like 900 to 400 BC-ish, but these cuneiform tablets, the, the first one, it says that it dates to 2000 BC. Um, Yeah. So, like, was it just was it just knocking around for for nearly four thousand years? Like, how did what's the how does a how does a tablet like that survive for that long, not buried in the ground? Well, it probably was buried in the ground. So this is this is my belief. So cuneiform is like one of the oldest persistent. I mean, the Egyptian kind of did the same thing, right? It it arises at like three thousand BC and then stays like relatively unchanged all the way till like, I can't remember what it is, when it fell into disuse basically in the Christian era, you know, 100 to 300 AD, it stopped being used mm. completely. Um, I actually believe that there, and I'll get into this, that in the old world, that there is a repeat of history, right? I think that a lot of things that we date to 2000 BC in the old world actually date to closer to 500 BC. Um, and I'll, I'll get into that into a minute. And what I think it is, is that um, there's something called, uh, let me let me not get into it now, but I'm just going to, we have things that are historically dated, like in, in the Bible and all sorts of manuscripts, and we have things that are archaeologically dated. And I think the carbon dating is off by a little. And so we basically got some overlap 
and I'll make my case for that in, in a little while. Got it. Um, okay, so let's see. Let's maybe I'll. I think let me exit out of this um, and just stop staring my screen for a minute and talk about some of these other things. Um, whoops. Okay, let's see. Did I stop sharing? Uh, interesting. Yeah, okay, so the I traced back the Chief Joseph tablet to an article in the 1979 issue of Smithsonian magazine, but they don't mention Chief Joseph. So it's like the it, it just seems like an artifact that doesn't have a ton of uh provenance. Yes, and it is Okay, yes. So the Smithsonian Magazine from 1979 has a photograph of a clay tablet bearing this inscription, which is the the lambs, the sale of lambs for, you know, on the 11th day of the month of the Festival of An. And then Robert Briggs from the University of Chicago translated it. It seems like this little tablet was one of the personal belongings of Chief Joseph, the ill-fated leader of the Nez Pierce Indians. I mean, it's interesting because it, it's not—it's a piece of evidence that's not even cataloged as needing examination, examination or explanation. Because normally, at least, okay, so you have you have an anomalous piece of evidence. And you'll have a rational wiki article that's just like, oh, they're idiots, they're mis misrepresenting it. Or you have a Wikipedia article that has some history of it. But the idea that there's this thing that was discovered that in the 70s was viewed as being re re relatively robust and it's just not there. Yeah. That's weird. That's weird. That's weird to me. Like, it shouldn't be like that. But so, so many of the North American artifacts were found by people because everything was just so pillaged, right? So then it becomes a hearsay, he said, she said thing. Like this Hearn tablet, it's like some lady finds it in her garden and she maybe swears that she dug it from a foot deep and then that no one could have stuck it there. But then the archaeologists are like, well, that's obviously not American. It's obviously Mesoamerican, or sorry, Mesopotamian. And so then it must have been planted. And so then you've got kind of like this, he said, she said, who, who's telling the truth? How do we know someone didn't plant it there? And, and like I say, I would have, I dismiss this too, if I was an archeologist, except for now that you see the conclusive similarities in Mesoamerican artifacts that can't be fabricated because they're yeah, the size of yeah, cars. Yeah. Yeah. Then I think that that's a good that point. It's like, okay, now maybe we need to relook at some of the things that we've dismissed. I mean, in some sense, this could just be a case of the lack of generalism in the sciences here, because each person's studying one culture in one place in one time period, and they they know everything about it, but they're not necessarily there's nobody necessarily sitting back and looking at the whole thing and publishing on the whole thing all at once. Yeah. Well, also let's talk about let's talk about dates a little bit because are we so the you've kind of indicated that you think that the dating period is should be compressed. 
Yeah. Where if you have something that's 2500 BC, that it might not actually be 2500 BC, that there's some sort of like cyclicity in the way that we're recording dates where really it's closer in time, which I think is, it's possible, right? Like people make mis- it, it, it's It's imaginable that you can make a mistake so fully and completely and it just gets cycled forward that it just never gets re-examined. And so you add this time and it's really difficult to be able to parse whether or not that time really is there and your dating methods are yeah. incomplete. And so, okay. I mean, like, really what, what I'm saying is that there is, there's something called the Hallstatt Plateau, right? And the Hallstatt Plateau is a known radiocarbon anomaly that starts around 500 to 600 BC. So anybody who's dealing with anything in the old world knows that as soon as you radiocarbon date something and get a result that says that it's 500 to, it goes all the way to 800 BC, if it's in that window of the Hallstatt Plateau, then we know that the radiocarbon date is not correct because we know there was some kind of a large atmospheric anomaly during that period that gives us incorrect radiocarbon dates. And so then what they do is they take um, dendrochronology, and they try to create on the intcal radiocarbon curve a correlation. So that's mm-hmm. like, well, if it gives us this date, then we know it could be kind of anywhere here. But if you get into the literature on the Hallstatt Plateau, there are lots of dates within that plateau that end up dating to 2000 BC. And this is known, it's in the literature, right? I can give a lot of sources, you can just look it up yourself, um, to examples within the Hallstatt Plateau where they know radiocarbon levels in the atmosphere just went crazy. So I believe that the Hallstatt Plateau, which is really kind of a newly, it's only within the last, you know, decade, couple decades, that they've they've really recognized the Hallstatt Plateau and that they've gotten the word out to archaeologists to, hey, beware of things that are in the Hallstatt Plateau and make sure you use a correlation curve. Okay, so the Hallstatt Plateau is not actually a real place. It's a plateau. <laughs> so I was like, where is that? That sounds German. Um, so it's it's a consistently flat area on graphs that plot radiocarbon dating against calendar dates. Yeah. And, and so the, it's basically... And Wikipedia say, says that, but that's actually not even true. Okay. Because if you get into better like literature, it's not just flat. There's spikes in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's at least two like major spikes that end up producing dates that date to 2000 BC. So even though the Wikipedia article likes to say, oh, well, it's just this flat area. It's like, that's that's not even true. Like I can produce a couple different um, studies where they know that there were massive spikes in radiocarbon dating, not just a flat plateau. And so basically, like the 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 plateau is in this graph that is calibrated date versus radiocarbon determination, and it's basically a perfectly straight line that descends from the top corner to the right corner, and then around the calibrated date from between eight hundred and four hundred BC, like what you're saying, the line gets screwed up. Instead of continuing along the same slope, it flattens, and then it has some features on it, which means that inside of that window, as you're getting dates, you're getting weird radiocarbon determination relative to yeah. actual date that Incorrect isn't dates. isn't lying along the trend. Yeah, this and there's is what, yeah, go ahead. And there's also like a really weird there's a really weird sharp change in the curve after the Hallstatt plateau yeah. as well. So and we talked about this in our last um interview basically where we're talking about how that, you know, if there was pull shift, then it would affect radiocarbon dates. And we talked about scientists know that radiocarbon dates aren't all perfect and they're trying to do their best to make corrections for where anomalies have occurred and so that they distinguish between radiocarbon years and actual years and they're trying to do correlations but we're still in the infancy of that science so what i'm saying is that there is a major issue during that hallstatt plateau between about 400 bc and 800 bc 
And that I think a lot of things that we get dates for, like the, the entire region has gotten overlapped. And we have a radiocarbon dated set of history and a historically dated set of history that actually are the same thing, um, but but have gotten tacked onto each other like this. And and I'll talk about that later. And yeah, I mean, because it, it looking looking at this Hallstatt graph, it seems like the everything's wonky from about like the radiocarbon determination of about 2600, 2600 before present to, I mean, 2200. What's the x-axis determined by? So, so yeah, can you explain? So it's the, the y-axis is radiocarbon determination, and then the x-axis is calibrated date. Yeah, so one is true, the true date, and one is the radiocarbon date that is given. What, what, what do you mean true date? Yeah, can you explain that? So one, one of them is the date that the machine gives us when we actually get the amount of radiocarbon that was in it, right? And we find the half-life. The other one is the date that actually it actually happened at. So let me give an example. So we, we get a sample from Israel, and that sample radiocarbon dates to 800 BC. Um, but we have a historical record that says that, hey, this is, from, um, this is from a city that we know was sacked by the Babylonians or maybe by the Persians in 400 BC. So I historically, see. we know that this happened at 400 BC, and yeah, our radiocarbon date has given us a date of 800 BC. So... There's something is that wrong. could they just be using old materials or something like that? Well, so if if it was a single date, right, that gave us an anomalous date, then we might think, just like I said before, like maybe this is corrupted. Maybe there is some groundwater that made its way through the ground and and brought in some radiocarbon from the limestone around it. But when they find an entire layer in a site, like maybe we're studying Lachish or some, you know, well-known city in Mesopotamia and we have really good records and date after date after date is giving us the wrong date and some of them are sealed charcoal dates and some of them are wood dates but they're all giving us this consistently mm. wrong date and in fact multiple cities we see it then we realize hey no there's a problem here with the atmosphere it's not contamination it's not a marine reservoir effect which is another thing that can make radiocarbon dates be off because the Mediterranean itself can bring in and corrupt dates because it it actually has an evaporation rate with different levels of radiocarbon. Um, so you get little isolated regional problems, but they find this all over. And so they realize, hey, this is like a major problem with the atmosphere. That makes sense. That's wild. Um, that, but that's really, so, okay. Um, are there any time points where the radiocarbon date gives the actual date and you don't have to make the adjustment or do you yeah. always have to make? Okay. No, so there absolutely. Are like in fact, all the time from the time of Christ to about 400 BC, radiocarbon dates seem to be spot on with, within 50 year window. And so how much of that is that that's just when we got really good at recording history? There is some of that. And, and not only that, so that, that brings a big point, right? Because the only place that we're able to even know that there is something like the Hallstatt Plateau is the Middle East where there's good dates. Whereas in the New World, in the Americas, we have no historical records. So if we get a date and it says 800 BC, we have absolutely no way of knowing whether it's right or wrong. Okay, and so with the Hallstatt Plateau, in, in so the Hallstatt Plateau is mostly in the Mesopotamia? It was discovered in Mesopotamia, and, and that's the only place we have records well enough to to prove that it's a thing, to prove that our radiocarbon dates are wrong. And so we have no idea if it's also happening in Europe and in Mesoamerica. Exactly. And, it oh. could be global. 
It could be global, like the entire Earth's atmosphere could have had a carbon spike in it, or perhaps maybe it was just the, the Mediterranean. Maybe a volcano erupted and that volcano dumped a massive amount of ash in the Mediterranean. And so then the surface layer of the Mediterranean now had radiocarbon diffused um, carbon dioxide in it that then evaporates in the atmosphere. And then for a couple hundred years before that water has a chance to mix, it corrupts all the dates downwind from the, the sea. Like that kind of thing happens. And so as like a geoarchaeologist, right, kind of, like I said, my, my specialty is kind of like thinking about those things on how the earth systems are interacting with archaeology. Have you looked at any eruptions that you, that we can put a finger on? Um, yeah, the literature has, has some, they suggest a few of them even for the Hallstatt. I think that the big ones they think are in Iceland. Um, I suspect though, that there was probably something closer like Italy has a lot of, um, anyway, this, this gets into things that I've, I've wondered. Like I've wondered if, if Santorini, right, with this massive era eruption that we know that entered the, the late bronze period, is it possible that we're dating it wrong? Like the, Mino the Minoans? And, yeah, yeah, and the major eruption that, that destroyed the Minoans. The Bronze Age collapse. Yeah, so we date it at, uh, I mean, God, it keeps changing, right? But trying to remember what, what it dates to somewhere between. I want to say like 1500. Yeah. I think it's around 1500 BC. So how do we know that that's right though? How do we know that it's really 1500 BC? How do we know that we haven't completely um, done our, how do we know our history isn't, isn't wrong in some major ways? Um, and, and there's people like Velikovsky is a good example, but there's people, kind of historical revisionists who have gone through all the data in the Middle East and tried to propose new timelines to where maybe we, we were a little bit wrong, where our historical dates are wrong, and so thus our calibrated radiocarbon dates are wrong. I propose my own, and mine is based on um, two different things of evidence that, that I want to go over really quick. So the first one I want to hit is a guy named um, Isli Sarchitl. Okay, so Ishli Sarchitl, let me really quick. Well, I'll just talk about him without pulling this up. There is the great grandson of the emperor of the Aztecs. Okay, so Emperor Montezuma, when Cortes conquered the Aztecs, had a daughter, and then that daughter married a Spanish conquistador, and they had a child. And, and this child was was raised in the Spanish court in Mexico City, right? So he's half Spanish and he's half Aztec. And he wrote a very robust history of Mexico. Um, and, it's, and it's a really Christianized history of Mexico. He kind of, he boasts in the beginning of it, right? This, this history of New Spain, that, that he has complete mastery over the Aztec language, right? So he knows... Um, Anyway, he knows the language, he knows the ancients, he can read their, their pictographs, um, and he goes around the whole of Mexico City and Cholula, and he interviews all the ancients, all the old, old people, and actually had an entire case of his historians that kept the history. He interviewed them, and then he wrote this massive, like, 200-page history of Mexico. Um, in his history, he says that there are three different groups that colonized the Americas. 
And he says that one of them came from the West and one of them came from the East and one of them doesn't say where they came from. Right. And then he, he tells about a little bit about Quetzalcoatl and some of that and coming from, from across the sea. Right. But the, but the big thing is that he tells about these founding um, groups and says that they're coming from across the sea. So then we have what I consider a reliable, a lot of historians don't, don't like to believe, I don't know, actually, historians are bipolar when it comes to Ishida Chochito because they like to believe his Chichimec history, but they don't like to believe his history summaries because it's too Christianized, right? Mm. Because he tries to draw all these correlations between biblical events and Aztec mythology and say, look, they're one and the same. They're, he tries to say, look, the Aztecs believed that the these people came from the Tower of Babel. And, and gives all these examples and historians say, no, no way. There's no way. Mm. But this is another example where I say, well, okay, look at all the evidence that I just proposed. Like if you look at those stellas and those reliefs and see how close they are to Egyptian and Assyrian reliefs, that I don't think that any rational person can just dismiss them. Then maybe we should relook at Ishli Xochitl's history and actually believe him when he says, historically that the ancients said that groups came from across the sea from Egypt and from Assyria, right? I mean, I think that this is a really big difficulty because there's so little data, so little primary sources that are, I don't want to say trustworthy, but are the kinds of preferred sources about the people's own history in Mesoamerica, right? There's not a ton of writing that survives. I think that there's maybe like one or two codices that predate the arrival of the of the yeah. Europeans. Yeah, there I mean, there's tons of codices, but as far as ones that are actual in the hand of natives, not very many. Most of right. them are copies. Because I was looking at uh, the the Florentine Codex, but the Florentine Codex was written under the supervision of a priest who was basically walking the the conquered natives through the stories that they were telling. And so obviously that's going to be colored by like these are the stories that you have to tell, and this is how you have to represent yourself. And so. I just I think that historians have a really hard time knowing how to parse these these pieces of evidence because we know that people are biased. We know that people don't tell completely accurate stories. And so like okay, why is there a resistance to the idea that that the Egyptians could have come across and that they could have had contact with Mesoamerica? What is the resistance to the idea? So let's say that there is, there are these pieces of mythological evidence. The stelae describe pretty obvious correlates between Egyptian iconography, Mayan iconography. There's overlaps with the language. Okay, so it seems plausible that you could construct a theory. What are the arguments against it? I I think that there's there's a story, basically, okay. right? And it's it all boils down to anti-colonialism. Mm. But essentially, it's the fact that these colonialists came into Mesoamerica and North America, for that instance, conquered the people, and then the people, you know, they have they have sacrificial sacrificial systems. They've got pyramids. They've got a lot of things that that remind the Spanish of the old world. And so now the Spanish go overboard and say, "These are the lost tribes of Israel," right? And they're basing that that hypothesis on fact, but they're blowing it way out of proportion mm. and it could be coincidence. And so they're making, they're building this narrative that it's like, Oh yeah, these guys are all the lost tribes of Israel. 
And that was the predominant view for a long time among all the learned people because they were being taught that by the Spanish because that's what the Spanish wanted to be true. But it was based on the Spanish's observations. And even Ishizu Chito, who's half native, he's constantly saying, he's even drawing correlations between the Jubilee year of the Jews and the um, 52 year calendar of, of the Mayans, right? And the, the Aztecs who followed that. So anyway, there's, there's actual evidence that he's basing it on, but he's like really trying to Christianize these natives. And so then after the natives finally kind of take back their power, kick the Spanish out, and now they're kind of a mix, but they there's now a counteroffensive that's like, look, you've stripped us of our culture, you've made us into a bunch of lost 10 tribe Jews. Now we're gonna kick back. And just like the Spanish maybe went too far in calling them all a bunch of Jews, now they maybe go too far in saying there's absolutely no way that there's any connection. Like I think that um there's been people who have called uh what's his who's it a white supremacist Hancock Hancock because he suggested that there is like cultural diffusion between the old world and the new world, right? So well, there's, there's this there's this there's this strange flavor of well, how could primitive people have done this? Which is a little perplexing to me. You know, because I think they were, despite the fact they didn't have lasers and laptops, they had great technological sophistication as easily evidenced in their architecture and the stone cutting. And massive quantities of raw human power too. Right. So I think that it it can come across as if one is saying, well, these primitive people couldn't, they were were dum-dums and they couldn't have possibly pulled this off without some shepherding, you know, Western advanced civilization and their technologies, which yeah. is, I think is a little insulting. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that argument in North America and it seems like rational that people maybe would make that argument because it's like when they got there, the natives weren't building, they weren't building mounds. They weren't using anything that was really impressive, but no one would ever use that argument in Mexico city. There was no Spanish conquistador being like, how could these guys have built these pyramids? It's like, no, mm. it's like they're building them right now. <laughs> like they're they're living in them. They're using them. Like it was obvious that the Aztecs, I don't, I don't see a single instance in the Mexican records of a conquistador saying, like, oh, these guys couldn't have done this. <laughs> they knew that they did it. it. But that's a North American argument because the North American Indians weren't living in the mounds. And so a lot of them are saying, well, oh, these mounds are older and they're by a more technologically advanced people. Mm-hmm. And it must've been white people when, if they would have had a better history and knowledge of Mexico city and how absolutely advanced Mexico city was, they wouldn't have even thought they would have been like, oh, this is probably from people from Mexico city came up here and built these. And then they went back to Mexico city. But Oh yeah. So that's, that's an interesting point. So do you, do you see this as being a momentary point of contact and then the people leave? Like, what is the what is the cultural exchange that you imagine happening beyond just the trading of visual representation? Um, so I go back to the most obvious fact of pyramid and hieroglyphic writing, right? I, I think that it, it was enough that it's after these things appear. Like these are the, some of the earliest forms of writing of hieroglyphics in America. Izapa is from like 200 BC, but this La Venta thing, that's like one of the earliest forms of writing in the Americas. And so then you got to think, well, this is like Olmec, like the mother culture, if you want to still call it that, sister culture, whatever you want to call it. Like this is, they had a big, a big impact 
because it's one of the earliest forms. And then suddenly the entire continent starts doing the exact same thing, starts building pyramids and using hieroglyphics. But it seems like we know next... We know next to nothing about the Olmecs, too. I've, I'm always trying to ask the archaeologists about the Olmecs, and it's just such a, it's so hazy to me still who these people were. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's aspects of it that are kind of hard because, like, there, anyway, the Olmecs are, are originally were just thought to be around the Isthmus of Tijuana and Tepec, but now they find that the Olmecs are all the way down to Guatemala. They're in the Mexican highland, the Cuicilco and Tlaco in the Mexican highland predate some of those things like La Venta, they're, they're closer to, they might even predate San Lorenzo. You know, they're like dating to 1500 BC. So then which came first, the Olmecs of Tehuantepec or the, the whatever you want to call these Olmec influenced groups in the Mexican island. But anyway, I, I want to just touch on one point that I hope everybody like, it, when, when we come into this discussion, like hits on the fact that these are not white people. Egyptians aren't white people. Like there, should, there should not be any kind of like we shouldn't have to make this such a racial issue when it comes to like Egyptians coming to Mesoamerica because they're not white people. It has nothing to do with colonialism. Like seriously, divorce that out of your mind and just look objectively of did Egyptians and Assyrians come to the new world? And then not only that, I believe that there's strong evidence that people from Southeast Asia came and influenced the Mayans. And I think that there's more debate there because there, there is strong correlation between the architecture of Mayan pyramids and the architecture of both Javanese and um, Cambodian pyramids. Right. And, and I can show you, anyway, I will flash up on the screen. Maybe I'll send you them later, some examples of that. Um, and a lot of people at Graham Hancock have pointed those out because it's they're super similar. And not only do you have a similarity in the pyramids, like I was talking about with Michael Coe, you have a similar in, similarity in the calendar. The Balinese calendar is very, very similar to the Mayan calendar. Not only that, you've got elephants that are in the architecture of Mayan, uh, Mayan pyramids. They've got these elephants. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the elephants you see all over in the Cambodian architecture. So I think that there is... <clears throat> Once again, but these are this is happening between 700 AD and 1100 AD, where there is incredibly strong archaeological, genetic, right, radiocarbon and archaeological and genetic evidence that there's culture diffusion coming from the Austronesian Empire, which was an empire that spread all the way from Africa to China. That that empire was was also in the Americas, and maybe you could make a case that it was the Mayans, because the Mayan civilization rose before the Austronesian civilization, maybe you could make a case that they they went from the Mayan lands and then conquered Indonesia and Indochina and then came came back. But, but right now, you can look up articles on the Austronesian Empire, right? The Austronesians, they, they conquered Madagascar. They conquered the Comoros Islands. Like, the language of people in Madagascar is Javanese. So they know that this empire was a huge deal, right? And it was it was stripping wealth out of Africa and trading it up into China. And that was all between 700 AD and 1100 AD, the same time, you know, just right at the fall of the Mayan empire itself. So I think you could make a strong case that it's like, you don't only have people coming from the Mediterranean to the new world, you also have Austronesians from Indonesia, Malaysia, and Indochina coming over into from the West Coast. 
so that there's been actually a long history of connection between the old world and the new world that archaeologists have failed to see and have they, they just haven't they haven't put all the evidence together and so they've all denied it but it's time to stop that well, it seems like they see it they just can't fit it into the bigger picture and it's such an interesting and conserved problem that we run into in every single one of these discussions is the ability, how do you grant an institution, individuals within an institution, how do you grant them permission to change their minds on a really big level? It seems to be a fundamental While academic- operating in the same space as somebody like Graham Hancock, who pushes the pendulum away, like the same way that you were talking about this reactionary tendency towards one perspective, like the the, Spani- the Spaniards show up and they say that it's the lost tribes of Israel. You have an indigenous pushback against that. No, that's not possible. You have Graham Hancock showing up and saying that, you know, that it was the, it was the Atlanteans who came to the new world and the established academic community is that's, it's radioactive. And that's just the case. This, there's the same there's time, definitely an immune response. Like when you talk about catastrophism and uniformitarianism and then the gradual acceptance of the Missoula floods, it's like there's, there's, an absolute dead set resistance against something that tastes and looks and feels like an idea that you think is culturally inappropriate. Yeah. And to make it worse, the you know, people get entrenched in the safety of pursuing established narratives to the exclusion of everything else. It's I don't I don't I don't necessarily think that's true. All the archaeologists that we talk to are like, yo, everybody wants a nature paper, everybody wants to be famous, everybody wants to have their ideas be the next idea, they want to shift the paradigms. Well and they I- say that, but they're all publishing on these incremental ideas within a long career track of incremental ideas. Well and it all that's- depends on whether their idea is is countered by the establishment, whether it's looked down upon by the establishment, because they all want to push the boundaries and and find something new. But there are certain topics that you just don't hit, that they're politically incorrect. And definitely ancient colonialism would be one. (laughs) I mean, this guy was like, he, one of the people we talked to uh, down in New Orleans, he was like, all right, write it up. Like, you can get it published. What's your problem? Like, you know, put I mean, together he a paper. Was, yeah, he really believed that it, that there was absolutely no gatekeeping in archaeology. And he's a, he's a professor of archaeology at Tulane. And he was, it was interesting because we had two people on the show at the same time. And he insisted that there wasn't gatekeeping. And the other guy tentatively acknowledged that there probably was. They actually right. said yes and no at the exact same <laughs> moment. It's right, really funny. Right. Yeah, it was Maybe excellent. It depends on what degree of it you're thinking in your mind, I guess. Yeah, and my I, experience I just, with scientists that I work with is they're very they're very open minded. But they scientists are open minded as individuals. They're yeah. open minded as individuals. You talk to an individual who is curious and wants to know about how the world works and wants to know more accurately the story. Definitely open minded, right? But as a practice that is public facing, as a practice that that is under attack by different perspectives, that becomes a different mode of interaction because all of a sudden you're a public facing persona that carries the responsibility of the true story that is being presented to the public. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's a good segue to talk about Graham Hancock and the idea of like a master culture and Mario. So like the, the, the evidence that I've given so far, right. 
that there that there was transoceanic travel before Columbus, two thousand years before Columbus, like literally just two thousand years before Columbus. We have the archaeological evidence. We have the evidence from the Aztec historian Ixtlilxochitl, right? We also have evidence from another book, which a lot of people don't know about, which I I wish everyone did know about. I really want a publicist called the Colbrin, right? The Colbrin is absolutely amazing. Like it is, it is so cool. Um, Can you tell us about that? Because you oh, you mentioned it before, but I don't know much about it. Yeah. Okay. So the Colbrin is a collection of manuscripts that have supposedly been passed down in England from at least 800 BC. And they were loosely compiled and eventually kind of compiled into a single book around World War One, and then released um, around World War Two, and then published more recently um, around like 1980 by, by like a kind of a crazy Planet Xer guy, right? He took this awesome ancient manuscript and he turned it into something, he calls it the Colburn Bible. And he marketed it as like this Planet X crazy thing, right? And so there's two different Colburns. There's, there's the Colburn, the original Colburn, and then kind of like this over-politicized Colburn Bible. And I want to kind of make sure everyone keeps those separate in their mind, right? Because it's not a Bible. There's one part of the entire book that is highly suspect um, as far as this authenticity. And that's an account it gives of Moses in Egypt. And in the very end of the account, it even says like this was found in, in recently and added to it and it and maybe of recent origin. It even like gives that disclaimer in it. And it, it seems really suspect. The entire rest of the book though, like is in my opinion, like conclusively of ancient um, origin. Like it has, it has a version of the Epic of Gilgamesh in it that is different from any other version, right? I mean, there's like 30 different versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? And three really good ones. And, and they're all quite different. Like, I think that this is the original, one of the original Epic of Gilgameshes. I can't even remember like, what it, what it calls it. The, um, the something of Hermanitur uses totally different names, right? Which you'd expect from an ancient document because it's trans, it's going through like four different translations. It says that the earliest versions were all written in, the earliest ones are written in Egyptian hieroglyphic. Then after that, there was a section of manuscripts written in Heratic and then a couple little sections written in Egyptian Demotic. Right. And then after that, they're translating it through two or three variations of English until it got into our modern English. But uh, the first third of the book is all Egyptian in origin. It's all just Egyptian mythology. Okay. So I want to pause for a second because the, the, the first thing that comes up when you look up the Colburn is the rational wiki page. And the rational wiki page is basically because there's no Wikipedia page about it. Right. It's been. They keep, they keep taking it down because they say that it is that it lacks reliable sources, and the Rational Wiki says that it lacks reliable sources because no hard copy of the purported original has ever been presented or is known to exist. Yeah, nor did it come from an archaeological context. Okay, so, so of course what do you? They, and not only that, the Rational Wiki is kind of funny because the Rational Wiki article on it used to completely demolish it, used to bash it, and I I, I check back on it every like five years, and it continues to soften its approach. <laughs> I think it's been through like three different versions where it's now and more softened than it was before because there's so much late Egypt or English history in it. Like there's a lot of history that dates from about 200 AD to about 800 AD, 
where it goes through like these genealogies and these king lists and stuff like that. And they're being corroborated by, by modern records, right? In English. And it's like, well, where on earth, if somebody made this thing up, he would have had to been like the most unbelievable historian in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, because he's, he's even adding little insertions to these king lists that date from like 300 AD and they're legit. They're in English history, but they've just got variations. They've got variations in all the names and, and it's the same as like what I'm talking about, the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's these things that make allusion to ancient texts, but they're they're altered in ways that that are totally believable. So I, I'm pretty sure like that the person who wrote the Rational Wicca page has never read it. Yeah, almost and the majority of people who do, they've they've never read it. And if they have, they maybe read that one account of Moses and they're like, oh, this isn't true. But it's like, well, that account of Moses even says that it might not be true, that it was added later. So read the read the rest of the freaking book before you want to make an opinion. And don't call yourself a, a scholar and write some stupid ass rational wiki page about something you know nothing about. But if, if you get on the uh on the forums, right? It has a cult following. I mean, there's so many people who are into it now. So if you get on their forums and there's all these people who are like who are drawing correlations between what they find in the book and ancient histories in both England and Mesopotamia. And they're super impressive. Like there's just so much stuff in it now, like one thing after another, it's like, Oh, look, this is just like this ancient Assyrian text. This is just like this ancient English text. Like it's mention of notice it, it never talks about King Arthur, but it does mention Lancelot, which is, it's like, if this was a fake, he probably would have mentioned Bolt, but historically they think that King Arthur was actually not a real person, but Lancelot was. So what's the origin of the book? Like, where where does it come from? How did it come to be something that was a book? So it it suggests basically the Druids. Like, it, the, what the book says, right? This is, and it's just a, it's not like the Bible. There's no cohesive story in the Colburn. It is a huge compilation of old manuscripts. And they don't have a cohesive story in them, except for this idea of a, of a group called the Sons of Light. Right? So it mentions this group called the Sons of Light. It says that they come from... Um, all the, every single name in it is in a different language. So you can't really draw a correlation between a single name. Um, so you have to use other, except for there's one that sounds a whole lot like, um, there's a city in Syria. God, how come I can't remember right now? So the place where this king, this head of the suns and light comes from is from Syria. Um, and and he, it says, after his kingdom is taken by a, by a, a some other king comes and takes his kingdom away from him. He goes into exile. Then there's kind of a mythological story about how his wife comes to him and gets his, her eyes taken out and she's blind. And anyway, and then he comes with this group of sons of light to England and establishes the light there. Um, and it basically establishes this religious cult. And then, and then it talks about all these other ships. Like through the history, it's talking about ships that are coming from Crete, ships that are coming from um, what we'd suggest is probably Turkey, um, ships that are probably coming from Spain, but that there was a culture of maritime trade and that they were continually bringing people to England and settling it. And and it talks about the earliest inhabitants of England and how they had dark skin um, and how they they sacrifice their children and they just try to stay away from them. But, but then with time, they started to kind of integrate with them. Um, they built all these cities. They hated it. They hated the place. It was wet. Yeah, trees grew on everything. It wasn't anything like their homeland. They had a really hard time. They died of diseases. 
And then it just kind of goes goes through the years telling story after story. But the majority of it's kind of more like wisdom texts, like just kind of like these magical incantations and all sorts of stuff that's just like what you read in Egypt, Egyptian lore, you know. But like, where is the text itself? Like, so with the Bible, I'm going to expose my ignorance here, but there's like ancient scrolls that contain the books of the Bible. Yeah, okay, so this one, what of it that it does suggest? It suggests that um, it was it was passed among the ruling class um, in the area of south of Wales, basically, around probably not Stonehenge, but, you know, up in Wales, and then ended up being um, salvaged from Glastonbury Abbey, like one of the earliest abbeys in England. Mm-hmm. And that the... I think it's talking about Henry the Eighth, or it might have been earlier, may have been when the Normans came into England, that they tried to destroy all the pagan stuff. And so that it was saved from the bottom of the abbey from all of these records that were kept because they seemed pagan. And that then it was from that time it was passed through some kind of a private hermetic order, you know, just like some religious order that saw itself as the guardians of these ancient manuscripts that had been saved from the cleansing of all the pagan material and and then just kept getting passed on through this order until around World War One, when somebody like actually because it was all written stuff someone actually put it into printed form and then published it and so is there a, a an ancient copy of it somewhere you figure there would have to be whoever um, you can you can read in its intro. It talks about the guy who gave it up and who says that mm-hmm. he basically gave it and then went back into obscurity. So it's kind of like there's probably an ancient order somewhere that still has the manuscripts that it was copied from, but they might have also been lost because it mentions something about um, the one of the one of the earliest books even being kind of like thrown away and then found by another guy and then republished. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I can see why it's a pro- it's a it's a difficult text for because I think that archaeologists like to have an object that they you know like a Rosetta Stone or you have a Dead Sea Scroll or you have some object that you date and you're like this is ancient and it checks out and we can work with it and so like a secretive hermetic order that passes an oral well, tradition. My understanding of the Celts is that their history and knowledge base was transmitted exclusively through oral tradition, like the priests spent their whole lives learning the tradition and carried it on. So it was really easy to obliterate their history by just wiping out their priest class. The bards. Yeah. I mean, but, but there's lots of different groups in England, right? So it's not even just the Celts. Right. right, There's a different tradition between the Welsh and the Normans and every different group. But I mean, there's, there's histories in England that, that they know date back to like three to 400 AD. Right. I mean, like, this is this is the epitome of the kind of stuff that science has absolutely no idea of how to deal with, right? So you have something that is, you know, a, a whis- let's say it's whispered, let's say it's an oral tradition, let's say it's kept out of the hands of the academic world that'll take it apart and analyze it and do whatever it does with it. Maybe because people don't want to share it. Maybe because they believe that there's power in secrecy. Maybe they 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 dislike the the tendency of science to treat these sort of artifacts as being now public goods that get, you know, put into a museum and no longer belong to the people who have them. Like, can you imagine uh, a group that... Let's say there is a group that maintains an ancient manuscript and then they share it with the academic world. 
the academic world is going to take that and they're going to put it somewhere. <laughs> it's right. not going to be something that you get to keep right. in your closet somewhere. And so by sharing with the sciences the things that you have found you or the things that you have, you inherently must lose possession of them because you have, you have surrendered them to the craft, the yeah. craft of analysis. Yeah. And so anything that doesn't want to be surrendered to the craft of analysis is going to remain forever suspect through the lens of that analysis because they're like, well, we can't get our hands on it. And if we can't get our hands on it, what does that mean? And yeah. so you end up in this really gray area where there's tantalizing clues, but they're not clues that can be evaluated with the same sort of standards that are used for other stuff. And so yeah. in that in that shadowy area, you have people that are really genuinely trying to figure stuff out, but you also have people that just, they're, they're hucksters and they're charlatans and they just, they want to tell stories and they, they make careers off of it. Yeah. I mean, a good scientist is skeptical, but he also doesn't shoot things down until he has a time to, ch chance to look at it. Yeah, we have of plenty of very similar texts coming out of both Ethiopian and Aramaic monastic traditions, right? Both those regions, Armenia, Georgia, you know, in, in the Caucasus, and Ethiopia have very old monastic traditions with tons of ancient records, right? And a lot of the oldest um, versions of both Egyptian Manetho accounts as well as early Gospels have come out of Ethiopia and Armenia, and we don't question all of those. We don't say, oh, these are all fake because we don't have the originals. Like this is obviously a 17th century copy, even though it says it's from the time of Christ. We know that this is, is in a language that was written in the 17 or 1800s. And so it, it must be fake. It's like, no, we know it's real because it, it makes references to all sorts of early books that we have in Latin and, and Greek that, and biblical texts. And so we know what they're for real. So anyway, they, that same degree of scholarship that you would attach to something that came out of Ethiopia or Armenia, you should attach to the, to the Colbrin. Even though you don't have any of the early copies, so what? See if it, if it checks out as far as the histories that it gives. It gives so much history, so many names. Mm. Compare those all. Like give it an actual academic rigorous reading. Throw out the parts because it's a compilation. So if there's things like that, that Moses account that seems suspect, yeah, throw it out. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a ton of stuff in there that is like legitimate history. This I, makes me really want to get the rational wiki guy on the show. Oh yeah, we should. I, mean, I think I'm, there's a single dude who's behind it. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's why. Yeah, I don't know if he's the only person now. Probably not, but um, that would be really interesting to pick his brain and see where he's coming from. But I think that this actually is something that we talk about a lot, which is that you as someone who's curious you have to go out into the world and you have to recognize that no one story is going to be solid gold through the entire arc of it no no matter what document no matter what experiment no matter what lab whatever like anything that you look at that has passed through the hands of humans and through the minds of humans is inherently going to be something that is full of weird pieces. And it's imperative to to look at the world not as someone who's like, well, that's an unreliable source and I'm going to throw everything out. But as someone who instead approaches it from the standpoint of, like you said, curiosity and investigation. What parts of it are good enough to hold on to? What parts of it can we throw away? What are the stories that we can tell from the best parts? 
And how willing are we to to turn away from the parts that aren't so stable anymore, as opposed to holding on to them because they hold, you know, they hold some other piece up. Right. And I think that's really hard for people because we live in a time, we, we didn't really talk about this, but we live in a time of absolutely insane information access, but also information falseness. Yeah, yeah. Ability to forge. Like, this the stuff that's coming out. I don't know if you've played with Midjourney at all. Mm. So Midjourney is this like AI uh, image generation tool where you can give it a oh, text right. prompt and it'll give you an image. Right. And they're on generation five of it, and it is insanely photorealistic. Right. It used to be that it couldn't do hands, and so like anytime that you could really easily tell that it was made by a machine because the hands would be like it would have like ten fingers and like they'd be attached to the shoulder or something. But it's finally gotten to the point where it is photorealistic. And you can't tell that it's forged because it's generated de novo. Have you seen all these deep fakes of Trump getting arrested? No, I have avoided that. <laughs> There's a I bunch of them came this. out last night. They're like really compelling too. It's really funny. I mean, I saw a deep fake of Biden declaring war on on Russia and like opening World War Three, right? Like we are living in a time where information has now lost all valence of accuracy and truth. Proof writing. Even a video, you can't, like someone could be doing miracles and no one would know. Like you would know what was true and what wasn't true. I've, I've watched like half of a UFC fight before I realized it was a video game. <laughs> I was like searching for some like archival fight. Not half, but like I started watching. It was like amazing actually. I don't play video games anymore, but it was just, wow. No, it's yeah, and so And so... For the, 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 the work of figuring out, you know, these ancient stories, I think that it's going to get much more complicated on one hand because the information landscape is totally twisted in a way that it's never been before. But I have this grand hope that all of a sudden people are going to start looking at things in a more uh, curious and renewed way where instead of just assuming that the old perspectives are correct they're going to suddenly wake up to the fact that our perception is so colored by the things that we've seen before and just the strong effects of our cognitive biases inform the way the stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works and maybe after a generation of that people will finally be able to look around and be like well hold on a second you could probably say that about science and archaeology and geoarchaeology and astronomy and all of these things and so yeah, I'm like maybe it'll tune up our our judgment. Maybe that that discernment, that ability to exercise discretion, is going to be a real strength of successful individuals. Like that's the hope, right? And I I think that the the work that you're doing falls deeply in that vein, which is that it's weird. <laughs> the stuff you're doing is 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 out of is is out of consensus. It is not what you would read on you know. Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever, but that's not because Encyclopedia Britannica is the word of God and it is what is final in the world. It is just a version of the story that we told ourselves with the facts that were convenient. Yeah. And we will have to tell ourselves a new story. Yeah. And hopefully we've trusted for the most part, the right people, you know, and that by trusting those right people, we have like a corpus of knowledge that is more or less, you know, true. But, but like this, this transoceanic thing, 
I hope I hope it gets incorporated quickly into the corpus of like scientific thought because seriously, how how can you deny it? Like, how does it change things? Yeah, I I find myself often like after I've gone through the evidence I just did, I find myself being like, wait, is that for real? And then you get like carried back into, oh, well, maybe that's just fake. And then you have to go back and you just look at the evidence again. You have to like constantly remind yourself in order to fight the onslaught of the mainstream narrative to be like, no, this, this is true. And to not to deny it is dumb. Like you can't say that those things are just by chance, but the import, the importance of the Colburn in this, the reason why I bring it up is the mm -hmm. Colburn has a section that talks about people from England visiting the new world. Hmm. Right. And, and the timing and, and the way that it talks about it almost like makes it sound like you've got Stonehenge type people, you know, druid priests going over to the new world. So then it's another evidence of like, it, it, you know, Graham Hancock tries to make this like master civilization, you know, that was pre ice age and that then like went across the world. I don't see it that way. I think that somewhere between 1000 BC and 600 BC, that the ancients just had a maritime, you know, just like the Phoenicians. Yeah, I was going to bring up the Phoenicians because everybody thinks of the Phoenicians as like a civilization. But if you look at the historic records, it's more like, it's more like just this. It's a technology. These, yeah, it's like these people. It's like a people who possessed extraordinary maritime abilities, not not easily located, to, you know, they don't have a lot of territory in the traditional sense, but they're, they're there, their presence is there, they're all over the place at once, they're making trips down the coast of Africa, they're, you know, there's a lot of lingu linguistic overlap with all the way up into the indigenous Britain people. It's very, very, they're very interesting and mysterious Phenomena and and the Colburn tells not only about the people from England going to the Americas, assumedly you know it says heading west, so across the Atlantic. It also talks about an Egyptian pharaoh sending ships over to the edge of the world in a place that it describes seems pretty much like it's got to be Indonesia. It says they're going past India, which it spells Kindia, but they're going from Egypt, leaving from the port, kind of by Somalia or whatever Kush. I can't remember what it calls it but then heading exactly east Punt, India yeah. yep, to Indonesia. So then you just had a technology, a, a technological culture, you know, like a maritime technologically driven culture that for some period of time, maybe, you know, 400 years, they were very driven to explore the ends of the earth. And that's the period where we see now the archaeology that I've shown that is obviously from the old world. So I just think that there was there was a period of time when the old world basically had a colonial mindset mm. and that that colonial mindset caused them to explore the whole world, caused them to colonize the new world. It was already there was already people there, obviously, you know, but they are setting up settlements there and that we see that evidence today. But then that mindset collapsed. Like we don't mm. know what happened, but maybe some kind of war, some kind of a system in the Middle East caused that technological era of maritime traffic to collapse and then they lost that technology all the way until Columbus. It's complicated because the tropics don't tend to preserve things really well and so if you have wooden boats you're not going to find it's going to be really hard to find any kind of relics or remains. I mean maybe off the 
off the coast in the continental shelves. Right. But how, I mean, it's so hard to find stuff in the sea. The, the boat is the last thing you're ever going to find in the archaeological record. Well, they find they boats periodically, right? They do, but like maybe if you brought it ashore to work on it and then it gets buried somehow, or maybe it sinks in a very shallow harbor. Yeah. Why is, it so, why is it so hard to find boats underwater? Is it just because the sediment builds, like, you, can you, use, you can't use LIDAR to do some kind of subsurface scan? No, no, not in the water. You're not going to get see. the kind of resolution that would show a, a boat showing up in the water. And they I immediately see. get taken over by this the sea life. Like, if it's in a tropical region, then it becomes a coral reef pretty dang quick. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're lucky to find boats that you know, you know where to look that are from, like, 300 to 400 years ago. And to find boats that are more than 2,000 years old, I bet I bet you can count on both hands how many boats they found in the sea. Yeah, there's like one really good Phoenician vessel that people point to that was found in the Mediterranean somewhere yeah, off probably. Crete. Like yeah. you can imagine the, the ideal situation would be that a boat shows up, there's a volcanic eruption, it sinks, it gets buried in sediment. But then how, the, the idea of finding it in the sediment? Right. Right. The, but I mean, like why do you need the boat? Yeah. We've we've got the things I already showed. It's like, it's all. How do you dismiss those? Like for real. The, the handbag. You had me at the handbag. Uh, the, the handbag is like the handbag is really the weird. Most convincing of all. Yeah, we we didn't talk about what's in the bag. What's in the bag? <laughs> <laughs> Should we go over the bag? I yeah, want to know what's in the bag. Yeah, yeah, let's let's close on the bag. Okay, let's do the bag. I'm gonna share my screen again for this. Okay, so these. This is where we, this is, okay, so the Colbrin gets interesting, okay, and it ties into this, because the Colbrin, the one kind of motif in there that tells a cohesive story is this group of the sons of fire that come from Syria. Sons of light or sons of fire? The, in some places they're called the sons of light and other places okay. are called the sons of fire, so obviously whatever word they're using is, can be translated to either one. But believe it or not, the sons of fire is also the name of the cult that wrote the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Right. Um, can you remind us what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? So Dead Sea Scrolls found in Qumran in Israel um, date from right around the time of Christ. They have some of the earliest dates of biblical material. You know, some of the they think are probably from 400 BC, some of the accounts of Jeremiah and other scriptural texts. Um, and anyway, this this very charged zealot group of, of Israelis, right, created a fortress in Masada where they lived their religion to themselves. And then when the Romans came and conquered, they held out and then all committed like mass suicide, I think. Anyway, oh. they, and they buried a ton of their religious writings in these canisters that were then found in the what, like early 1900s in Israel. Mm. But some of the earliest texts um, in existence as far as the Bible goes. So, and it's really interesting because this Sons of Light group in the Colbrin which on the first reading, you would never guess that they had anything to do with Israel because they never use the word Israel. They never mention the place of Israel. They, but then as you start to dig into it, like they have little accounts where they say that it, they felt like it was their God-given, um, they said that the sons of light could also be translated the sons of the written word. And that basically their God had given them this edict to be record keepers. Mm. And that they felt like their God-given job was to keep the records. And that their cult originated in Egypt, right? And so that's why the whole basis of the beginning of their book is all Egyptian wisdom texts, basically. And that then it went from Egypt and went to Syria, 
And remember, for a lot of Syria's history, that was actually part of the Egyptian empire, like during the Ramesian dynasty, during all the way up to like, uh, um, God, at least probably 800 BC, Syria was part of Egypt, right? Until you had Babylonians come in and kind of conquer that section from Egypt. But uh, so anyway, they, then you've got this record in the Colburn that talks about people going all the way from Indonesia to the New World, right? And that they are Egyptian-based and that they feel it is their duty to keep records, right? So um, that's interesting because this artwork that we find with the handbag, right, correlates with these motifs that we find in Assyria, right? Basically the border of Syria and Iraq. And there's four different sites that are all in this very small area. Um, one in particular, Nimrud, that has tons of murals, wall murals. Okay, and the wall murals, if you look up, just look up Assyrian relief on Google, right? The Assyrian reliefs, they're super famous. There's like two kilometers of them. Like there's not just a couple of them, right? They, they, could, they span walls because they were just lined to this enormous palace in near Mosul. Um, and every one of them had this, this motif of some kind of a winged being usually carrying a handbag. An airline passenger. <laughs> yeah, right. These are stewardesses. No, most of them are either like birds. Some of them are, are oxen, but they all have wings. So let me go to it really quick. Find a version of it. Um, What's in the bag? <laughs> <laughs> Just killing me with suspense here. Man, I wish I had better release of it. Okay, I'm sharing my screen real quick here. Okay, can you see that? Okay, mm -hmm. so here's a better example. Um, do you see what he's holding in his hand there? Really this close. avian being. Some kind of fruit? It, it looks like it could be a, almost a kernel of corn. What, what they typically think it is is like a pine cone-like thing, mm. right? So if you look up like pine cone and pale on Wikipedia, it has its own article. Mm -hmm. But what he's standing in front of there um, is, okay, now I got to switch to a second page here is seen in this account very box. So in this case, instead of being birds, so this is, this is well known. This is not just my thing, right? You can find articles that talk about these Assyrian motifs. They're mostly in the British Museum. In the center is a date palm tree, okay? And that date palm tree is surrounded by kind of like a chain work of flowers. And then the, these priests are carrying with them a bag and a little pine cone or sponge dauber. And what they believe this is, which I think is totally, once you hear it, it's like, oh yeah, obvious, okay? So date palms are incredibly hard to breed, okay? Date palms, their flowers will open for just a few weeks. And a lot of times the male tree and the female tree will have flowers open at different periods of time. And if they don't open at the exact same time and have a strong wind to pollinate them, you lose your entire date palm crop. And so anciently what they would do is they would save the pollen from the date palm, from the male date palm, and then they would manually pollinate the date palms to create a crop. Hmm. 
Mm. Right? So then what you've got here is a palm tree, right, with a chain work of flowers that would attract bees and pollinators. And then these priests that somehow, for some reason, these they're almost like cherubs because they have wings, these winged priests see it as their duty to pollinate the um, the flowers anyway, to create a day palm. Mm. Okay, so here's where it gets super interesting. Um, there are a couple like temple rites, like ancient temple rites in that Colburn book that I'm talking about. And it talks about how that they used a pail in their temple rituals, right? And it was like kind of like this, this uh, symbology type thing of how the pollination of of crops, you know, like you were supposed to be like a master gardener, anyway, all this stuff. So even the culprit has like this, this temple motif that is kind of like similar to almost what you're seeing here in, in this Assyrian panel. But what, what I believe, right. And, and this, this will seem crazy to everyone. So you got to hear me out until you get through all the evidence, because at first thought it's insane. I believe that these Assyrian motifs are actually plunder from King Solomon's temple. Elaborate on that. Later. Yeah, tell us about King Solomon a bit. Okay, so first of all, let's look at King Solomon's temple. We've got all sorts of descriptions of what was on the walls of his temple, right? So for instance, here is the verse in Ezekiel that says what was on the inner and outer walls of the temple. It says, all the walls were decorated with carvings of cherubim, and there was a carving of a palm tree between each of the cherubim, carved all along the inside of the temple, from the floor to the top of the walls, right? And this is like, they're like 40 feet tall, right? Because the temple is tall, including the outer wall and sanctuary, right? And then first kings on the walls all around the temple in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Okay, now we get even more specific down here where he talks about the open flowers. Like here he's talking about, let's see, let me find. What's this webpage that we're looking at? This is, this is um, a, a website that I run that I put mm. a bunch of crazy ideas on. So here, here's an artist's idea of like what the inside of the Temple of Solomon looks like because he knows that it's palm trees. Right, but remember it says that there are cherub on each side of the palm tree. So this artist didn't draw it right, because there should be a cherub, a winged creature, on either side of each of the palm tree. Um, and then they had these carts that, that carried basin, and each of them also, it said, had that same motif of cherub and, and palm trees. And even the columns, the top of them, were kind of made to look like palm trees. It's lily work. Um, I'm trying to find. So here's another one right here. All the walls were decorated with carvings of cherubim, each with two faces. There was a carving of a palm tree between each of the cherubim. Um, and then some of us says Ezekiel has his vision and it's all like temple oriented. He's like seen in his vision, all these things that were in the temple. Um, anyway, the, here again. I don't know my biblical history as well as I should. So is this the first temple in Jerusalem? Um, your microphone just died out for some reason. I don't know. Oh, there it went. It has back. I bumped it. Yeah, so uh, it's, sorry, it's yeah. the first temple, because the first temple was the tabernacle that they built in Egypt, right? And it's probably based on Egyptian, I mean, so the Jews supposedly, right, according to the story, the Jews came out of Egypt, 
so they're Egyptians, essentially. They've lived there for 215 years. So their religion is essentially Egyptian. You can assume, even though Jewish people might say, no, we preserved our own religion for those 215 years, but I would doubt that. Anyway, so they bring with them Egyptian culture. They built the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle. It's like this movable temple. And all the way until Solomon, that's what they use. But at Solomon, they actually build this like massive um, stationary fortress tabernacle. And is there any remnants of this structure? Basically the Wailing Wall, right? Mm-hmm. Because after, when it was it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians come in, they completely destroy the temple. They steal all the plunder from the temple. They take it away to Babylon. Uh, and then the Jews, after 70 years, are allowed to return. And then they rebuild another temple called the Temple of Zerubbabel, which is near, mm. not nearly as cruel. It's like this watered-down, tiny, crappy version of the temple. And then that kind of persists until Herod. And then Herod rebuilds around it a massive, really cool temple that only survives for like a hundred years until the Romans come in and just completely demolish it. Mm. And so all that's left of it is the is the Temple Mount, right? Got it. And the Wailing Wall. Um so but let me let me just do one other thing here. There's where is this? The chain work. Okay, so this is a really cool thing. Here's two other descriptions that talk about the temple. It says, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees on the surface and supports of the panel and every available space, right? And then on this other one, it says, on the walls around the temple, both inner and outer, he charred cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, right? And in another section, he talks about a chain work of, of flowers, where when it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant with the, the earliest Moses temple, twisted chain work cordage, right, is the word that it uses when it talks about it. Some, some verses translate it as a filigree, right, which is the chain work of flowers that surrounds the palm tree, okay? So then we have all these descriptions saying that there are cherubim around palm trees with the chain work of flowers. Well, I mean, isn't that exactly what we're seeing in these Assyrian motifs? And so you think that the Assyrian motifs are actually panels from the temple? Yeah. And not only that, it makes sense because the hub, and the Romans talk about this, the rub, hub of date palms was Israel. Like the city of Jericho was named the city of palms, right? Right down from Jerusalem. It's like one of their main exports, even up until Roman times. The Romans talked about how there was date palm orchards going all the way from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee, which is how it is today too, right? Like the date palms in the U.S., that we grow, they're all in the Salton Sea trough. They're all in the Imperial Valley because they grow really well below sea level. They don't mm-hmm. grow, they have to be really hot. So all of the US's, um, which is at almost the same latitude, honestly, as Israel, all of their major date palm um, forests grow in um, Palm Springs, right? And there's the actually a really good place out there called Dateland where you can get a really good date shake. I've, I've been by there. And there's the bill, billboards that say, come and see the sex life of a palm of a date palm. You've seen that because they have this really sophisticated sex life, like in order to pollinate date palms, it's a very complex process, which is what the bucket's all about because they have to manually pollinate their date palms. And they created these chain works of flowers around the date palms to try and increase the chances of them being well pollinated. Right. Just like what we see here in this, in these motifs. So in context of what you find in Assyria, uh, how many of the panels are 
look like they're the same handiwork. Do you know what um, I mean by that? Yeah. So as far as the Assyrian panels, um, all of the ones that have this motif of the, this kind of date palm, like sometimes they call it the tree of life, but this date palm with the winged beings, they are very similar. Like they are all like identical as far as their artistry. They have very similar motifs. But there are other panels that um, have slightly different artwork, right? That may, may, may be from somewhere else. Because, I mean, I, I feel like I've seen, I've looked through images of the Assyrian uh, carvings, and I've, there's there's different levels of quality and there's different levels of workmanship. Yeah. And that might be that might be one possible source of, of, of identifying where they come from and how they originate. Yeah. So let me, let me unshare really quick. Um, there's, there's something so, it makes sense that there would be these holy creatures that pollinate and maintain the garden. That's just such a, it's so, it's so vital for humans at all times. Civilizations collapse when the food source collapses. Like when you look at preppers in the modern day, what are preppers worried about? Preppers are worried about the, the food running out and the supply chain sending. And guns. Hmm? And guns. Well, they need the guns to protect the supplies that they have from the other people. Right. But I think they that that's, that's like a really fundamental human thing because we, I, I live a modern life where I garden for funsies. There's no way in hell that the gardening that I do is going to provide me with enough food to make it through a long, cold winter. And as soon as the food supply starts to get shaky, that's the end of a civilization. So it makes sense that these figures that are so central that are showing up in other places, it's like if you're bringing the technology and you're bringing the message, you're bringing the message of, of take care of the garden. Yeah, like it, it was integrated into their religion. Like basically they created a religion out of this idea of how important it was to pollinate their, their sacred tree, their palm tree. And from a like conservative mythology standpoint, it makes sense that people are not conservative from a convergent mythology mm -hmm. perspective. It makes sense that they might come up, stumble upon that narrative separately, but the stylizing of it is what's really intriguing to me. Yeah. What's, what's intriguing to me is that I don't know of, I don't know of Christian mythology as having this guidance towards gardening and towards the maintenance of the plants and the and the propagation of 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 the fruit yeah i mean you as far as the ideas of fruit and tr sacred trees and gardening i mean you definitely see it in the bible and even in the new testament but as far as like having one cohesive story that pulls them all together in the bible well, come on, it's in like the first book, right? But I mean, it's a place that, yeah. that we get ejected from, right? Right, but it is primary. It's primary, but it's not primary in the sense that it is currently lived in and must be maintained. It's primary in the sense of this is what we've lost. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so let me, let me bring this even one step further, okay? Because the garden motif gets even bigger because we know about um, the hanging gardens of Babylon right? Mm -hmm. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So did you know that they've never found the hanging towers of Babylon? Right, right. So not only are these explained in Assyrian texts, but even Roman historians talk about the, the, that they went and visited the hanging towers of Babylon, right? But they've never found them. Right. So, that, so the, the biblical story that when the Babylonians came and destroyed Israel, 
right, and took them all captive into Babylon, they have never found any real evidence of Jews in Babylon. Hmm. Right? Babylon is Iraq? So the 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 common knowledge of yeah. everyone is like, well, Babylon is not only Iraq, it's down by the Delta. It's down between Baghdad and the Delta. So if we're going to look for where the Jews were carried captive into Babylon, we should be looking at the ruins of what we believe to be Babylon down between Baghdad and Iraq. But A lot of it's underwater too now from what I understand. Well, no, it's the opposite. Remember that? The oh, it's the opposite? Okay, okay. There's a lot of silt that filled in. Yeah. Okay, okay. The ocean's like 50 miles further away than some of the early Sumerian cities. That's right, that's right. But uh, so they've never found any, is, any evidence of Israelis or of Jews, right, in Babylon. So it's like some people have even now speculated, well, maybe that story is just made up. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it's not real history. So what I suggest, though, is that these cities in, in Nimrod, the city of Nimrod, is actually where the Jews were carried captive. Right. And this is kind of crazy. Like, so this gets into where people can go ahead and call me crazy. Right. Because this came to me in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to, now we're going to get in my own craziness. I'm going to step out of my scientific realm. And so if you're a scientist, then you probably take all this with a grain of salt. But I full on had this dream slash vision type thing that, that, that kind of like showed this to me. And it was funny because when I woke up, I was like, no. <laughs> And I, I remember like that whole day, I kept like, I was researching and researching and researching it. And I, everything I'd find, I'd be like, no, there's no way. Because first it was like, well, Babylon's down by the Delta. No, this doesn't fit. No, that was, that doesn't fit. But then the more I looked into it, I'm like, holy crap, this fits perfectly. Like mind blowingly. Like this is full on it. Like how on earth didn't we not see this? Okay. And, and so first of all, this, this city in Nimrod, right? where these reliefs are found, they actually find hanging gardens. There's a huge ziggurat that they know had hanging gardens on it, right? And so not, there, there's a, an Assyriologist, what's her name? Um, Stephanie Daly, if you've ever heard of her. Mm-mm. So Stephanie Daly writes a book called The Mystery of the Hanging Garden of Babylon. And she points out the same fact that they've never found any evidence of the Jews in Babylon. They never found out where the hanging gardens of Babylon on. And she suggests that this city where these, um, right, and I didn't know about any of this. I, I found this all out after the fact that I'd had this like dream. She suggests that this city is Babylon, right? But this is what, this is what her reasoning is. Because they believe that this is an Assyrian city, and I'll talk about why they think that afterwards, right? They, because it's up by Mosul instead of down by Baghdad. So because they think it's an Assyrian city, she says, well, maybe all the historians are wrong. The Romans, the ancient Babylonians, all the histories maybe have are wrong. And maybe the hanging gardens of Babylon weren't actually in the city of Babylon. Maybe they were actually earlier and they were in an Assyrian thing, in an Assyrian city. So that the Roman historians got it wrong. They weren't the hanging towers of Babylon. They were actually the hanging gardens of Assyria. Okay. And she gives, she had writes an entire book, right? Like 300 pages giving one evidence after another for how this city where these reliefs are found, this Assyrian city that we think is Assyrian, is actually the same as the Hanging Towers of Babylon. But she thinks that the Roman historians got it wrong and that the archaeologists got it right. I say all of her logic actually works in reverse, but she's got a blind spot 
and she wants to blame the ancient historians for being wrong instead of who she should blame for being wrong, who is the modern archaeologist. Mm -hmm. I say the modern archaeologists are wrong. And this is what they've got wrong. So every one of these, these art motifs, these wall motifs, have written on them something called the standard inscription, right? And it's like basically written in cuneiform. It's just this standardized thing that says, I am the king of Assyria. I am a badass. I'm amazing. I have conquered the world. Hear me roar, right? You can, you can, there's a Google page or a Wikipedia article just on the standard inscription. So you can look that up yourself. But basically it states who the king was and how he conquered and, and got all this booty. And then now he's made this wall motif to prove. So because of that, they're just sure that these, these cities are actually Assyrian cities, right? Well, I say, no, 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 no. What happened is he's bringing back booty and then he's writing graffiti essentially on top of all the artwork that he steals that says who he is. And not only that, you're forgetting that in the, the Babylonians called themselves the king of Asher as well. Like they called themselves Assyrians. And so just because it says, I am this king and I'm the king of Babylon and Assyria, like you're forgetting also that it's pretty common for these imperialists who conquered massive amounts of territory, like the Assyrians, to have two capitals. So I say he had two capitals. He had one capital down where they know, you know, down in Babylon, closer to Baghdad. He had a second capital up here in Assyria, right? The upper Euphrates. And that these standard inscriptions um, are Babylonian. These are the kings of Babylon. They're not the kings of Assyria. That you're just kind of confusing. Um, and I mean, you have to read my article because I kind of go through it. But you can go through her logic just as, as easily and read her book. because. If she's right, then it's possible that the same thing can be in reverse, where this city is actually a Babylonian city instead of an Assyrian city. And that the king of Babylon mentioned in the Bible, he conquered everywhere from the lower delta to Egypt. Right? Oh, so what you're saying is that the Assyrian city is also a Babylonian city. And so when they enter and they find the hanging gardens of Babylon in Nimrod, that's because it's part of the same empire? Yeah, it is, it is the one that the historians mention. It's the one that's mentioned in the Bible. But when they actually look at, for it in the city that is known as Babylon, they don't find it because what it is is it's part of the Babylonian Empire and the gardens are located in a different part of the empire. Right, right. They had two capital cities. And that, and that they are misidentifying the city of Nimrod and thinking that it is an Assyrian city that dates to 700 BC, when in fact it is a Babylonian city that dates to 600 BC. It seems like a small, small time gap. Yeah, for sure. And it's not like there's a date written anywhere on it, right? They're getting their dates because they're correlating it with artifacts they're finding in Egypt, right? And this is this is another thing. So historically, both biblically um, and in some of the histories. It says that Babylon conquered Egypt, right? And there's not really any record of Assyria um, conquering Egypt, as far as in the Bible, right? It's Babylon that conquers Egypt. But as far as the archaeology, they find just the opposite. They know that Assyria, the same, same culture that was centered in Nimrod, they know that it conquered Egypt because they find matching artifacts. Now that they find huge stashes of like Egyptian ivories and and 
uh, Jewish ivories in the city of Nimrod. And not only that, there's actually a, a tomb of a Hebrew queen in the city of Nimrod. Or it might be one of the ones right next to it, but basically in that complex of the four Assyrian cities, they find, no, it is, it's in the exact same city, in the exact same city, because uh, Stephanie Daly talks about it. So they find an, a Hebrew princess tomb in the same city that has the, ta- the hanging gardens and the same city that has all these reliefs that they think are Assyrian, but I say are actually in the Jewish temple. So that, so that makes sense. So they are misidentifying. They're thinking that this is an Assyrian city just because they think common knowledge is that everyone knows Babylon's down by the Delta. I'm saying, no, this is a second capital of Babylon, Abba by Masul. Nimrud is actually the place where the Jews were carried away captive in the Bible. Are there distinct differences in the customs and architectural style between Assyria and Babylon that have been identified that lead them to think that they're discrete like this? Um, I mean, yeah, they're they're definitely different. But if you have if you have a cap if you have two capitals, like take Egypt for instance, there's a lower Egypt and an upper Egypt, and they have you could say they have discrete cultures. They're slightly different. But periodically, empires conquered both upper and lower Egypt, and they usually made an upper capital and a lower capital, and then they maybe tried to unify the culture a little bit, but they still stayed distinct. That doesn't mean that the empire didn't rule both upper and lower Egypt. So same thing with what I'm saying with Babylon. There are two distinct cultures, dating all the way back from the Sumerians and the um, Akkadians, but that doesn't mean that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar of the Bible, didn't conquer the entire region and set up two capitals, but that he brought the Jews to the northern capital near Masul. And that's also where his, his famed gardens were, mm-hmm. which we find the archaeological evidence of in that same place where these reliefs are. So tie me back to America then with the Babylonians. Okay, so then th- that's where this gets crazy, right? Because the two, two of the main artwork pieces that we saw, one is the guy with the pail, right? And so there's a guy with a pail in Mesoamerica that matches exactly with this Assyrian motif. Birdman with a pail. Right, which if I'm right, it's not Assyrian, it's Jewish, mm. right? But this is pre-exilic um, Jews. Like these are, these are like from 700 BC. These are from before the conquest or from before the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. So, I mean, call them maybe Israelis instead of Jews. I don't know. Well, they, they would ethnically tie into the Phoenicians really tightly, actually, at that point, I guess. The Canaanite Absolutely. civilization. I mean, the Hebrews being sort of like a enclave within the wider uh, Punic race, ethnicity. Well, I mean, the biblical history is that Solomon basically was formed an alliance with the Phoenicians, with Hiram of Tyre, right? Which was the head of the Phoenicians' Eastern Mediterranean state at that point. Hmm. And not only that, the Colbrin, which I already talked about, it mentions Hiram. So it talks about Hiram, and it talks about people coming from Syria, which was basically the northern kingdom of Israel at the time. It's all part of this kind of Canaanite culture. So then not only that, the second artwork that I showed, remember the the kind of lion bird type thing conquering, subduing the captive? Mm -hmm. That was also found in the same, well, one little area down, but basically the exact same region there by Masul of the Assyrians. It's part of the Nimrud ivories 
which I told you you could look up. And there's there's hundreds, and it might even be thousands. It just sounds these huge caches of these ivories. And a bunch of them actually have Hebrew writing on them. And so you think that they also came from the Temple of Solomon? Yeah. Well, not necessarily the temple, but when they conquered Israel, they brought tons of booty. That's wild. And so you've got you've got a Hebrew princess's tomb in that city. You've got the Nimrod ivories, which have Phoenician and Hebrew writing all over them. You've got wall motifs that match precisely with the description given in the Bible of what's on the walls of the Temple of Solomon. You know, so that, that's a lot of pretty strong evidences that point to the idea that these Assyrian wall panels were actually stolen from the temple and taken to this Assyrian city. Why would you have the burial chambers of a Hebrew princess if her people have been conquered and taken there? Well, so I mean, if you if you read the biblical story, there was there was more than one captivity. The very first captivity, they just took the elite. Then the second captivity, they destroyed the temple and then brought and killed the king's children, but brought all of the children of the elite to Babylon and then raised them as Babylonians. So the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all those stories in the Bible, where the Jewish elite children were brought into the actual king's court of Babylon and then were raised to high status within Babylon so that they could help administer the conquered Jewish territory. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So basically Babylon comes in, it destroys the social structure, it destroys the main administration buildings, it takes captive all the elite, and then it forces those elite to then be the rulers of the new sub- newly subdued people. And that was kind of their strategy for being able to keep the, the areas they captive, they, they conquered part of the Babylonian state. That's still the same strategy, right? I think that's essentially what we did in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Recent we being our... Yeah. uh, So like the story of Esther, you know, is a great story of like a Jewish girl who was brought, she was made a princess. She was the queen of, of one of the Babylonian kings. How does it change, like, how does it change you to see the world like this? How does it change the way that you see our own civilization and like how, how does it affect you i don't know what is it what has this revelation done to you personally in terms of seeing the world that we live in so i mean i like i i have a lot of like dream type things i was telling you that kind of like tie this stuff together to a cohesive narrative for me and the O'Hare, the, the, the narrative to me is is somewhat similar to um Graham Hancock type thing, but but totally different, right? It's like to me, it make I, I see like a repeating pattern, and that pattern is like all about power structures and and regions becoming incredibly powerful and then conquering the world and then falling apart, mm-hmm. right? And so I see that the Middle Eastern kingdoms, of which Israel was a part, and like it kind of changes the way I look, I see the Bible. Like, I don't really see the Bible so much as a religious text, as that the fact that, that the reason why it caught on and became so popular was because it was like this really, it's just a cohesive history, and everyone loves history. And it was like the oldest history there was. 
And so around the time of Christ, it's like they put together this super good history that spanned 2,000 years all the way back to you know Abraham. And because it was the best history out there, it won over. Mm. And, and people turned it into a, a religion, you could say, but it's like, it's just a history. And what does that history say? It kind of tells about a master culture, but not, not a Graham Hancock pre-Ice Age at Atlantis culture. It's, it's the Middle East. They just became, mm. and Egypt was at the head and they became incredibly powerful and they conquered the world and they created settlements everywhere. And we know really well about the settlements they created all the way up into the Scythian regions, right? And all the way over into China, right? And what I'm, the part that I'm adding is, and I think the Colburn adds, is that they're also creating settlements in Indonesia and they're building pyramids in Indonesia. They're also making settlements in the New World and creating pyramids among the Olmec, right? Leventa. They're also creating settlements in England and that, and that they kind of created this grand unified globalist culture, kind of like what we have right now. But something happened that it all completely fell apart. The climate changed. Yeah, maybe. maybe right, because I mean, like we know that that we know that the Sahara was green at some point in. I in mean, the early Egyptian years, even in the uh, early Egyptian years. That, that, I mean, that that that'd be too early though, because it, we know it was green, but it was like seven thousand BC when it started to. Because so, I'm I'm thinking that this culture exists around six hundred BC, right between a thousand BC and and six hundred. BC, maybe 400 BC at the end. But I mean, you can imagine that, let's say, if it if the peak green is 6,000 years ago, and then it begins a slow decline, and there's yeah. a sweet spot where the culture forms, it rises, and then it turns into complete desert, and they just don't have the technology to be able to deal with that. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that might be the, the biggest, if that is the case, and it is tied to climate, and it is tied to the collapse of your ability to maintain your food supply and your population, then that ties into what we're experiencing today because we're seeing like most of the plants we keep, you can't plant the seeds from them, right? Like we sterilize our fruits and our vegetables because we don't like to eat watermelon with seeds. We don't like to, we don't like to have the, the weird pithy bits that make fruits difficult to eat. And so everything that you buy at the grocery store, you can't plant. And there is some people that maintain their historical seed stocks, but that's a pretty small contingent of people that are betting on uh, resilience in the aftermath of an agricultural system that collapses. But most plants are propagated through tissue culture. And so they don't actually use seeds. What they do is they clone a specific mother plant that grows well. They produce vast quantities of it in tissue culture, and then they raise it from the cells not from the seeds. And that's a pretty fragile point of... of that's right. just, it's, it's a weak link. You're forming your culture. And that reminds me of something someone recently told me too, how it's like most empires form at a similar latitude for that exact reason, because your food sources, it's really hard to like conquer a people who you can't really understand how to grow their crops. Mm. And I, I thought that was super interesting because it's like, yeah, true. It's like the Middle Eastern culture, they all kind of share this climate and they all were conquering each other. But notice that the Valley of Mexico, which is, I think, once they came and built La Venta, right, and conquered La Venta, and then they went and built Chalconzingo, which is on the way up to the Mexican Highland, that then they formed Cuicuilco. And that Cuicuilco 
The reason why it has a circular temp temple, just like all the temples we see in Syria on the tells, right, is because that's where they went. They went from La Venta to Chalcanzingo to the Valley of Mexico because it had a similar climate and they could grow their crops there. The supremacy of the Egyptians in this new version of history is really intriguing to me because the Egyptians lasted, a, even in the standard history, they lasted way longer than anybody else. If you look at the amount of time from the beginning of the Egyptian civilization to the end, let's say Cleopatra or something, there's more time then than there has been since then. Yeah. Right? It was a huge, huge preponderance of our historic record, let's say. Yeah, like 3,000 years. Which is just wild to imagine a civilization persisting in some form or another for 3,000 years. Yeah. When, when we're like shaking ourselves apart after a couple hundred. Well, yeah. everything happens faster now. Right, right. Well, they didn't have deep fakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, maybe that'll be our end. Man, I mean, this is, I, I love the, I love the depth of study that you do and the breadth of it as well, just that this is something that you're so obviously passionate about and that you spend your time figuring it out and laying it out and putting together these arguments. It's just, I, I want to see a future of the world where there are are more people like you, where there, there's an entire ecosystem of of blogs and funding and people working on these sorts of questions and, and really digging deep into how to change the stories and the narratives that we've held dear for so long in this careful and exacting way, because that's what we need. And it's so, it just brings me so much joy to hear the story, because it's clear how much thought and time you've put into it. And it holds together and you've cross-referenced so many different things and you're, you don't seem to be, you don't seem to be waylaid by the, these immune reactions that so many people have where it's like, well, we don't look at the Bible because the Bible is a work of fantasy. Well, we don't look at these histories because, well, they're just, they're, they're myths. And they're silly primitive people. They're silly primitive people. And we don't bother with, you know, questioning the dates because the dates are good and everything holds on that. And I wonder if it's partially because you're working outside of the academy and you're free to pursue the things that you're curious about. But it's just, it's just so cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I, I think that part of my narrative, right, the, like the future fits into it. And so just like we said Going back to the climate, it's interesting that civilization definitely um, took off in the Middle East. And that was definitely like the hub of civilization between Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece. Like that's where it all happened for at least 2,000 years, maybe 3,000 years, maybe 4,000 years. But then all of a sudden it switched to Europe, like almost overnight, it seems like, right? Like nobody lived in Europe in 500 BC, relatively speaking, right? It was like north of the Alps, those were just barbarians. There was nothing up there. Well, what made it so that the hub of civilization, right, which I've studied so much with this interaction between Egypt and Babylon, it all collapsed there and it all moved up to Europe. And so then that kind of fits into our idea of pole shift. Mm -hmm. Like that would sure make sense if the pole shifted and the climate suddenly like if the Middle East used to be like, 
a very hospitable climate and then suddenly it shifted so that people could move up into the north regions i i don't see like we talked about this before i would love it if, if some mario stuff or anyone could show me some kind of cohesive picture where the pull shifted at at a thousand bc or at the time of christ i don't i can't see that i can't there's no way i'm i'm putting it way earlier like 5,000 BC at the earliest, and that's only assuming carbon dates get really skewed before that, right? Because at, la at the latest, to, yeah, because it well, depending on whether you want to call it late or early, <laughs> <laughs> the radiocarbon date shows that the climate that the ice age ended right at 12 to 9,000 BC. But if the if the ice age ended because the pole shifted, like I suggest, well, then the radiocarbon dates probably aren't right. There would be a major skewing of carbon dates when that shift happened. Mm but it would still be a, a predictable pattern of skewing. It wouldn't be random, right? It would be predictable. Like it would just be along this logarithmic curve where the things between, let's say that it shifted. Anyway, I, I can't see it shifting that recently. I can't see it shifting at the same time that the cultures all shifted from Mesopotamia to Europe. So, but something happened, I think, to change the climate even if it wasn't a pull shift, or maybe it was just a pull shift that way earlier. I think the climate totally changed. Well, there's a lot of hysteresis there, right? The, yeah. And could the planet preserves, yeah. Could it it takes a while for things to change after the initial stimulus. Well, and after glaciation, yeah. you're going to have a long period of time where it's pretty inhospitable in terms of just yeah, the, yeah. The, the terrain is changing, The there's a lot of flooding, there's a lot of... It, it it's inhospitable as a result of the change of the climate. And then yeah, maybe it settles for long enough that you then start to build and you're no longer being just decimated. Because, I mean, the glaciers would take a long time to melt and they would form lakes that were dammed and then those dams would break and you would assume that there would be like pretty significant damage to the landscape that carried yeah. on for a long time. It would take a long time for the soils to develop and for the forests to all grow and yeah, and, and in normal terms, we think that that happened between about you know ten thousand BC and when people moved in at about the time of Christ. Well, maybe you could say a thousand BC when people started to populate Europe, really. But but then maybe maybe that's wrong. You know, I, I would assume that the carbon dating would have to be skewed if the pull did shift, but that it probably isn't skewed that much. Maybe just by a couple thousand years, maybe just by four thousand years at the most. So that in true dates, the pole shifted around maybe 4,000 BC instead of 10,000 BC. But that that period between 4,000 and 10,000 BC, where we see no archaeological evidence of really very many people in Europe, there's just like these scattered people, that that's kind of part of this curve where the, the atmospheric conditions, the radiocarbon levels in the atmosphere are changing abruptly. And so it, our correlated NCAL curve should really change abruptly there. Hmm. But, I, but throwing all that away, I'm curious when I think of like how how entirely civilization collapsed in the Middle East and completely moved to Europe, and then Europe becomes the new hub of of civilization. Are we are we ever due for that switching back? And is there maybe some kind because when we talk about the religions of the world and especially biblical Christianity, there's there's something in our cultural mind that seems to like be pointing us towards some kind of apocalyptic collapse of the Western cultures. You know what I mean? It's like everyone kind of like feels like, like maybe 
the way. hundred percent of our Hollywood movies end in complete burning chaos. It's right. really fascinating. And maybe it's it's our inner sense of justice that it seems like different regions of the earth should just take turns having the major empires be there. They should take turns having the nice climate. Interesting. What are you working on next? Yeah, man, we've done like three hours here. This is, <laughs> this is incredible. I mean, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. It's been really cool to get to know you. And I'm, I'm sure that you know next year you're going to have a, a whole new slew of, of visions and ideas and research. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the next phase in the Lance Weaver saga. Also, what a name, Lance Weaver. That's okay. a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, my parents must have read too much King Arthur. <laughs> are you uh, are you going to keep going down this avenue, or do you have some new topics that you're planning on researching this next year? You know, there's there's so much more. Like in in such a short time, it's kind of hard to to hit all of the evidence as far as the transoceanic travel. And so, a big part of kind of what I'm doing is drawing a more cohesive picture of Mesoamerican archaeology. Um, so that's that's one big thing because I I want to not only you know talk about the things that we or investigate things that we talked about as far as like people coming to um, La Venta, you know, and Isthmus of Tehuantepec and starting some kind of culture. But I track the spread of that culture to the rise of the Teotihuacan Empire. And then the transition of the Teotihuacan Empire to the Toltec Empire, and then how that actually correlates with North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, like the correlation of the Toltec Empire between the Valley of Mexico, West Mexico, the Anasazi of the Southwest, and Cahokia of the, of the Midwest. Because I see that as like all one cohesive culture, which, which used to be ridiculous, but just starting now 10 years ago with the, the cacao pollen studies that they've done. They've pretty much proved that, right? They know that cacao is only found in Mesoamerica, and yet they're finding cacao inside of all the vessels, even in Cahokia in the Midwest. So they know that there was some kind of a cohesive trade system between the Valley of Mexico. And and that the reason why we have all these Toltec state parks and Toltec mounds and the Tula Indians that DeSoto said they were found in Oklahoma we've dismissed that for hundreds of years, but I'm saying once again, it's like, no, those shouldn't be dismissed. There was a cohesive culture um, between the Midwest of the Americas and uh, the Valley of Mexico. So I'm kind of trying to to create a story there, but then at the same time, something that maybe we could say for another time, which is huge, is what we talked about with the Hallstatt Plateau. I'm trying to re um, create my own revisionist history of Egypt Right, and, and there's been two or three people who have done that in the past, but my, what I'm using is this Colburn book. So the Colburn book gives one piece of information that that is huge, where it ties um, Hiram of of the, the Hiram of the Tyre, right, the Philistine Hiram, with the um, Pharaoh. Um, oh, how did I just forget? Uh, Aminhotep, I think. Anyway, so it, it ties them together. And right now they are 400 years off in, in those two timelines. Like they're separated by 400 years. But I've been trying to find really good pegs to try and create, like, because I've, I've suspected that because the Hallstatt Plateau and because of issues with um, where we get most of our um, Egyptian 
pharaoh chronology, which is from Manetho. I've, I've, I've suspected that there's some issue in there, and I have all these reasons for why. And, and the Assyrian thing I talked about is one, like where there's no record that really Assyria conquered Egypt. There's historical records that Babylon conquered Egypt. Yeah, all the archaeological evidence points to the fact that Assyria conquered Egypt. But all the historical evidence um, from the Bible, at least, and from more recent Egyptian histories, all point to the fact that Babylon conquered Egypt. So anyway, I'm trying to create a correlation there. And that that's a whole another topic in and of itself. It's huge. And going into the history of, of how we trust Manetho more than Herodotus, and how I actually think we should trust Herodotus more than Manetho. That that's another thing that maybe we could save for another time. Yeah. And you're working this all out in a blog somewhere that people can get to? Um, yeah, but I don't I don't have a whole lot of it on my blog. A lot of my blog is just random musings. Right on. Well, well yeah, <laughs> send us a, the I links think that's to what that. Blogs are, yeah. I, yeah, can I you... have a lot of like religious thoughts, right? Because I grew up Mormon, so I'm trying to reform the religion as well. I mean, a lot of that's like 15 years old when I was younger, and I'm trying to basically drive a religious reformation on my blog. But... <laughs> I love it. Well, cool, let's man. let's catch up down the road. I yeah. mean, there's always there's always really interesting stuff to talk about when you come around. So we'll do it again. It's like six months later. Awesome. Yeah, sounds good. It's always fun to chat. All right, cool, Lance. Have a great rest of your day, man. All right, awesome. You too. Thank you so much. See ya. Cheers.